Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Hello, everybody. Happy Saturday. This chilly Martin Luther King Day weekend. Here um, in the cold upper Midwest, we are hardy souls. We're used to difficult conditions. We bundle ourselves up and head out to shovel snow or slosh our way onto a bus. We check up on our neighbors. In Chicago, where I am, we do all this despite the post-COVID hike in violence. A challenge is just a challenge. And there's work to be done and people to look after. That's just who we are. Over in Michigan, Governor Whitmer never slowed down, even when a MAGA militia was hunting her. On this side of the Great Lake in Wisconsin, Governor Evers never paused, even when the MAGA legislature created a bogus commission to pretend the state's election didn't count. Both governors won re-election because they showed that democracy is a vital force, that by peaceful means, it makes our lives better. Enter the MAGA majority in the U.S. House. Over the course of 18 votes, Speaker McCarthy slid towards the speakership, winning only when, according to Representative Matt Gates, there was literally nothing else he could give away to the crazy caucus. These these are not folks who trudge out into the cold and check on their neighbors. They're certainly not about to focus on making our lives better. Instead, they're going to work hard. I'll give them that. They'll work hard to convince Americans that our government is our enemy, that it's a place of hidden evil, that only by sh- shutting down can they effectively govern. Meanwhile, they will be trying to reward their wealthiest funders with tax dodges, regulatory holes, and monopolist legislation. Okay, I know you guys are not paying attention. Wake up. Because if you were paying attention, the phone would have already started to ring, and you would be asking how anybody can effectively govern by shutting the government down. So please wake up. Because it makes no sense at all. And that, of course, is the point. These guys are telling ordinary Americans whose income tax is paid every two weeks by payroll deductions that the IRS is coming after them. It's a lie they spread to justify gutting the agency. Why do that? Remember that Donald Trump said he couldn't release his taxes because they were being audited. He was lying. They weren't being audited. The big, complicated returns, the ones where folks like Mr. Trump hire big law firms to hide their taxable income. Those are the returns that the IRS would like to audit, but cannot. Never mind that the understaffed agency is unable to process the simple returns of ordinary Americans in a timely manner so that we have to wait sometimes for months for our refunds. And let's be clear, those refunds are overpayments in taxes you made. They aren't a gift. This is your money. But the understaffed IRS with the ancient systems and broken technology cannot return your money in a timely manner. The GOP wants to defund the IRS and send its auditors home, telling Americans 
they are a real threat. To whom? Not to you, not to me, not to anyone earning less than $400,000 a year. And if they get their way, the income inequality problem in our country will grow. The powerful will not be asked to pay their fair share and discontent will grow. And the IRS thing, it's only a little example. Here's a bigger one. Speaker McCarthy and the GOP House are walking America into a default on our debt. As part of his pact with the MAGA crowd, McCarthy promised to hold the debt ceiling hostage to the radical agenda. The the consequences of such a decision are so catastrophic, it's hard to imagine for our economy, for the global economy. And, And look, it'll permanently damage our nation, ending the dollar's reign as the world's reserve concern. I'm sorry, world's reserve currency. And that'll lift prices on everything for everyone. But as I told you last week, and as FDR reminded us, or warned us rather, in 1938, the root of fascism is discontent, and its fertilizer is a democratic government that cannot better our lives. We must understand this, because it is the key that unlocks the MAGA secret. All the so-called oversight hearings, the ones that should hold an administration to account, are now hearings designed to convince Americans that our government is a danger. They've stood up a committee on the weaponization of government. That's red meat. That's all that is. For every militia that goes into the woods each weekend to pretending us to protect us from, I don't know, from having to get a vaccine. They will yell and scream and find monsters under every bed and miss no opportunity to terrify us into thinking life is terrible. And then they will use all their might to stop the government from bettering our lives. These are two sides of the same totalitarian coin. And for the first time in our history, a majority in the U.S. House, the People's House, wants democracy to fail. January 6th was a battle, but the insurrection continues, and we must be ready for the fight. Happily, here in the upper Midwest, we don't get intimidated. We get to work. We're going to take a quick break, and when I come back, I'll be joined by Congressman Jan Schakowsky. Stay tuned. Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only the world, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. I remember a time when there were two political parties in America that both believed in our democracy. I no longer have a sense that there are two political parties that share goals. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Okay. I'm joined by David DeWitt. Um, before I do that, hey, Jewel, I still have an echo. Okay. So David, uh, as you guys know, he's been on the show before, uh, writes for the Ohio Capital Journal, is a, a, a great observer of what's going on. And, I, you know, I, um, I've long referred to Ohio as the, state that democracy forgot, but there seem to be some 
stirrings of it in that state. So I'll, I want to get David back. Um, David, welcome. Thank you, Edwin. Thanks for having me. So um, I have so much I want to talk to you about. Um, but let's can we start with this? The recently retired because of age restrictions, uh, head of your Supreme Court has started a, an effort to change the Constitution again in Ohio to uh, fight gerrymandering. Talk a little bit about her and about that. Right. So we have um, a now retired Supreme Court Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor, a lifelong Republican, former Lieutenant Governor who broke with the party to um, rule with the Democrats on the court against various different maps put forward in a partisan manner by the Republicans for the state house and U.S. congressional districts. So the bipartisan group ruled against those maps a total of seven times uh, throughout the past year and a half. Um, and what ended up happening is the Republicans ran out the clock and Ohio voters had to use unconstitutional, illegally gerrymandered maps to uh, vote in the 2022 elections here. And so the Republican Justice Maureen O'Connor, basically she said in her rulings, you know, this is all about the rule of law. Uh, this isn't about partisan politics. And the Republicans in Ohio essentially ignored her, ignored the rule of law, uh, ignored threats of contempt and forced voters to use illegally gerrymandered maps. Maureen O'Connor signaled that since she was being forced into retirement, she would join the effort to once again bring redistricting reform to Ohio voters because we all just saw how poisonous uh, having politicians control the process could be. And so I think that what you'll see with new efforts for gerrymandering reform is to create an independent commission or somehow remove the power of the politicians to control this process because apparently the temptation of gerrymandering was just too great for the politicians to handle. And so we ended up with this nationally embarrassing cycle of uh, being forced into using these unconstitutional maps. Um, so I think that that's what her move will be, along with all the other various groups. You know, there's a lot of good government groups, pro-voter groups that uh, tried to go with this new system for uh, redistricting reform that did not work out so well. And so I think that they all want to go back to the drawing table and go back to the voters and say, hey, we need to kick the the politicians out of this process. They refused to uphold the Ohio Constitution and the voters will. Yeah. So, David, I mean, Ohio sent 15 members who were not duly elected from legal districts to the United States Congress. And I think that was after, as you say, a sizable majority had voted to amend the Constitution to prevent exactly that kind of gerrymandering. So there's got to be a lot of pressure on Republicans in Ohio because I think people are pissed off. And so um, you combine that with the results all over the country that showed Americans are rejecting that kind of radical extremism. They must be saying, hey, wait a minute, maybe we can moderate a little bit just to stay alive. And I, and I guess I understand that um, unlike in the 
United States Congress, the effort to find a speaker of the Ohio House um, did push back on its crazy right wing a little bit. Yes. So that was interesting. What ended up happening with the new year are the old speaker of the House was term limited out of office. And so he was gone. Uh, And in December, the Republican caucus agreed to an elect uh, leader named Derek Marin. He's up from the Toledo area of Ohio, basically Um, not Toledo itself, but just that northwestern area. And that new speaker is, you know, he's kind of a religious fanatic. He's anti-union. He's an extremist. He's one of the more extreme members of the Republican caucus. And apparently he didn't make any concessions to the old Ohio Guard. He didn't do any reach out. He didn't uh, indicate that he was going to let them have any power, committee chairmanships, etc., um, he just didn't really do a good job in the back room of, you know, whipping his caucus together and gaining full support. And so a certain faction of 22 Ohio Republicans um, decided that they, they weren't going to be able to work with him as speaker. And so they joined with 32, uh, all 32 Democrats in the Ohio House to elect a different speaker instead. This one's name is Jason Stevens. He's still plenty conservative, but in a more old school conservative way, you know, the kind of supply side worshiping um, classic Republican instead of this new age, neo-reactionary Trumpist type of Republican. Yeah, I mean, I just interrupt for a second. I don't have a problem with conservatives. I mean, I disagree with them, but I don't think they're, they're planting the seeds of fascism in our country. We just disagree about how to move the country forward. So this is, a, I think, a real step, you know, towards uh, restoration of the battle between left and right, as opposed to the battle between people who believe in democracy and the people who just want to overturn it. Yeah, I, I think it certainly can be viewed as a step in that right direction. Um, and I agree there are, I think that there are plenty of conservatives who, you know, they will have good faith disagreements with Democrats and progressives on all kinds of issues. And those issues are, you know, those disagreements can be hard and uh, and very heartfelt. Uh, But fundamentally, hopefully, there's still a belief in democracy and the American representative constitutional system. And. I think that when when conservatives and progressives can align, it seems insane that we need even need to this even needs to be said. But when conservatives and and progressives can align on fundamental issues like American democracy, I think it's important that they do so. <laughs> so this deal that they created, it's not. It's not a. It's not on paper, and there's nothing guaranteed. I certainly wouldn't agree to this some sort of guaranteed protection from right wing radicalism in Ohio, but it has a framework for compromise that includes things like 
um, making a good faith effort toward bipartisan redistricting reform. It includes stopping the radical right wing proposal to raise the threshold to pass Ohio constitutional amendments for voters from 50 percent, 60 percent, which would basically make all Ohioans and our constitution subject to 41 percent minority rules. Um, So it includes stopping that. It includes um, kind of killing these radical extremist laws, you know, whether they're about schools or they're about trans issues or they're about reproductive rights, kind of stopping those and stopping Ohio from being a national horror show when it comes to extremist laws. So I know that there will be plenty of disagreements between Republicans and Democrats but if this block of the majority of the Ohio House sticks together, this, these 54 lawmakers that in my latest column I called the adults in the room, if they can stick together, they could create something resembling a serious legislative chamber in the Ohio House instead of just a playpen for right-wing lunatics, which is what it has been. So, David, I have, because I'm so upset about the gerrymandering and the illegal um, districts that people were forced to vote in. I've been calling Ohio the land that democracy forgot. But this is very encouraging. This is, you know, I guess, you know, the flirtation with uh, autocracy and, you know, forcing upon people things they really don't want um, is terrifying to enough Republicans I think because they think they'll get swept out, but that's all right, that they're willing to inch their way back to normalcy. Um, I I just think that's grand. And I applaud you in Ohio for getting there. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm always very I, I can't say that I'm ever totally optimistic about Ohio politics, but I'm cautiously optimistic about this it's possible that if they stick to their guns and they stick to this deal and this coalition you know politics is the art of alliances and compromise and they have this framework for compromise and responsible governance if they stick to it then yeah there's there's good reason to think that ohio might not be making national headlines for the most embarrassing stuff possible and i think that there are definitely segments of the Republican donor classes and what the business types, to be honest, you know, the chamber types don't want Ohio to be seen as a radical extremist Mecca. You know, um, they want people to want to build businesses here and do economic development. They don't want Ohio to seem crazy and out of its mind. And so I think that even among the donor classes of Republicans and stuff, you, you want there's this desire to take the temperature down and to be more responsible with governance. And this is a good, healthy step toward that. I'm still remaining plenty skeptical because I don't know for sure how any of this is going to work out. Nobody really does. And we've got some immediate tests coming up, so we'll know more soon. But on paper, it's, it's, it looks like it could be something good. Well, I'm um, and I'm thrilled because it's been so frightening and sad. But I, I'm not I'm not overly optimistic, even if I'm happy about the progress, because 
really, really? Someone was reading Dr. Seuss in a third grade classroom and they got interrupted by a local school administrator who said you can't do it because it's CRT? Yeah, I mean, this is what <laughs> this is what we're up against. And it's why. So, I mean, you still have this extreme force in Ohio Republican politics. For instance, after that speakership deal was made, those 22 Ohio Republicans were censured by the Ohio Republican Party Central Committee for voting for an Ohio Republican House Speaker. And I think that's pretty illustrative of kind of the toxic crankery that the Trumpian Republican Party has descended into. Um, they voted for an Ohio Republican controls the Ohio House. He's the speaker. And yet 22 Republicans get censured for voting for a Republican. It's kind of a wild atmosphere. And you have they're very they're very strong force. You have these you have. religious zealots, and I'm not just talking about regular religious people. These are religious zealots, the extremists. Um, There's nothing wrong with being religious, but when you're a religious fanatic and you try to impose that into law, um, you're no longer with any sort of majority. You're acting in an extremist way. That's that's who that faction is in league with, along with the the bullies of children and the anti-reality COVID deniers and all those people. Like, they're all basically losing their minds about this deal because they want to continue to pass these extremist laws. So they're going to continue to introduce them. They've carved off a whole separate block now, a whole different faction in the Ohio House. Their first order of business was reintroducing the proposal to attack Ohio voters and the Ohio Constitution. And so, you know, they're not going away. They're going to be doing stuff like this, trying to repropose anti-CRT, trying to repropose the trans athlete ban and the um, more abortion laws, a full abortion ban, that type of stuff. But there's hope that with the 54 adults that they stick together and they're able to kill these things now instead of being beholden to these people to force them through and into law. Yeah, and I mean, I know about the abortion ban that they, they want to, but they've also, they're going back to let's make it harder to vote, right? They've got new voting restrictions. Let's take a minute and talk about the whole issue of like voter, like like state ID and how that's gotten harder to get, how you lose your driver's license and then it's harder to get registered, like the whole suspended driver's license problem. Right. So at the, in, in the lame duck in December, at the end of the last legislative cycle, we have two-year cycles in Ohio. So that was the last General Assembly. We have a new two-year one starting right now. Um, in the lame duck, they passed a sweeping suite of voter restrictions. Uh, they include establishing photo voter ID, what's been called the strictest photo voter ID law in the nation, it all, that law also includes uh, rolling back the opportunity to obtain absentee ballots, rolling back the opportunity to submit absentee ballots, rolling back early voting hours, eliminating the first, the last day before the election of early voting and redistributing those hours. It just erects a, a suite of barriers to voters. And what's interesting about it is that, like, there's no justification for this. They 
they say Americans are worried about election integrity. That's their justification. But the same people run our elections. Our Republican Secretary of State has said that we only have point oh 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 five. Um, three zeros and a five point zero 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 five percent possible fraud in the 2020 Ohio general election. And yet, because America, because they say Americans are concerned about election integrity, uh, they needed to enact this, this suite of new voter restrictions. And for instance, you know, Ohio has 8 million voters. One million people in Ohio currently have their licenses suspended because of debt. People go into debt for a variety of reasons. They get their license suspended. And so right off the bat, you have one million people who are going to be disenfranchised and have to jump through a number of hoops in order to be re-enfranchised. And and just so we're clear, the people who lose their licenses because they have debts, we're not talking about you know, the multi-million dollar debt that a company is in when they merge with somebody else. We're talking about people who get behind on their credit cards. We're talking about um, uh, low-income folks who owe uh, traffic fines they haven't paid. We're really talking about yes. about low-income Ohioans, a million of them stripped of their right to vote. Yes, exactly. And... um and of course, people people say, well, they can go get a license and whatnot. They have to take off work to go do that. They need transportation to go do that because they can't drive anymore. Uh, a lot of places don't have the public transportation to get them to these places. They already face enormous struggles because they're mostly in poverty anyway. And yep. so it, it's pretty it's pretty reckless, I think, of citizens to say, well, you know, like, what, what are they, they have they have traffic debt and they don't have their license. They're irresponsible. So they lose their right to vote and participate and be represented in democracy. It's despite the, the bad faith of the rationalizations for it. I think it's fairly clear that, you know, these politicians know exactly who this is going to impact, which voters and who they vote for. And, um, It's a Jim Crow literacy test in the 21st century. I mean, call it what it is. It's an absolute attack on low income, mostly minority people. And it should entirely be illegal. But for the fact that um, we have a Supreme Court that's closed its doors to voting rights cases. Hey, David, um, we got to take a quick break. Everybody stay tuned. I'm talking to Ohio Capital Journal's David DeWitt. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Back, and I'm talking to the editor-in-chief of the Ohio Capital Journal, David DeWitt. David, um, you've got some pretty senior folks in the United States Congress. Um, One of them got a lot of votes to be the speaker. And definitely didn't want the job, Jim, Jim Jordan. What can we expect from the judiciary gavel in his hands? I think um, a lot more of the same as what we've seen in the past. And that's just, you know, Jim Jim Jordan's flying circus, just a complete uh, just a complete freak show. Um, Think of Benghazi, Benghazi, Benghazi on steroids. He's going to. 
is going to be running ill-informed, paranoid, um, mostly false equivalency, so-called investigations in every direction that he possibly can to get on Fox News as much as he possibly can and to just try to create controversy to try to drum up some sort of evil controversy. It's not going to be a serious pursuit of justice or anything like that. It's going to be a kangaroo court. Um, and it's going to be the Jim Jordan show. And it's going to be um, a way to probe and investigate and harass and try to humiliate uh, as much of the Biden administration as possible for two years in a row. Just primetime television um, insanity is what I expect. So, so that's a that's a minute and a half answer where you didn't say one thing about what he wants to do to better people's lives. Not one thing he wants to do to lower costs for Americans on anything or to improve infrastructure or to improve health care or to grow our economy. Is there none of that in his agenda? I don't think so. I mean, I think we're going to hear a lot about Hunter Biden's laptop. I think now we're going to hear a lot about these classified documents from Joe Biden. And somehow yep. Jim Jordan is going to pretend that that's much worse than Donald Trump. When just like a simple comparison of the facts, they're not even I mean, they're both bad. You should, nobody should ever take classified documents. But Joe Biden, right. his lawyers found the documents, turned them over proactively, you know, like tried to give them back and sort the situation out and everything. Donald Trump refused to give them back and claimed that he de declassified them in his head. They and that they were his. Yeah. yeah, and that they were his. There are like 280 of them, including highly sensitive nuclear secret documents. Joe Biden's were much less. But none of that will matter. I, it will, to Jim Jordan. To Jim Jordan. Yeah. Show. None of it will matter to Jim Jordan. He, so you're going to see Hunter Biden. You're going to see attacks on big tech. Um, and accusations that Facebook and Twitter threw the election somehow for Joe Biden. You're going to see this classified stuff. You're probably going to see him go after Pete Buttigieg for the airline computer mess up. I mean, he's just going to chase everyone around the beltway with, you know, the, the conspiracy nut accusations and throwing out subpoenas and just trying to make a circus out of it all. And it's all just red meat for the base, really. Well, let me, let me, pursuit of justice. yeah, I want to run a theory by you. Um, I was struck, I was doing some reading and I saw a quote of FDRs from 1938. Um, I don't have it right in front of me, but the, the gist of it was that, um, that, Democracy is a vital force that seeks day and night by peaceful means to improve the lives of Americans. And when it cannot do that, fascism will take root and grow in our land. That's almost exactly what he said. I don't have it in front of me. And I get the sense that the, that the funding base of the Republicans wants things that cannot happen through popular government. Right. They want no taxes on 
on wealthy interests. They want to be able to have monopolies so they don't have to compete. They want um, uh, the government to have no say about things like health conditions, uh, public health or or product safety or any of that stuff. They want to roll all that stuff back to the 1920s, to what was called the Lochner era before courts said, yeah. you know what, we do have. Right. So, so but they can't do it. Americans aren't there. So they have fundamentally said on that and on the uh, Christian right agenda, the anti choice agenda and on guns and on things like that. They can't do it through the front door. Americans, that's just not who we are. We don't support what they support. So they want to undermine the democracy itself to get what they want. And if FDR is right, that um, stopping the government from day by day, by peaceful means, improving our lives, then all they have to do is have Jim Jordan out there stopping doing nothing to improve our lives and trying to convince everybody that, in fact, our lives need great improvement, but the government can't do it. So they're sabotaging um, government. And that is fertile ground for autocracy to grow in America, just as it has been everywhere else. Is Am I out of line thinking that? No, I think that you're you're exactly right. I think that it's something that we've seen for a long time. Generally, the idea is make sabotage government and make it as ineffective and incompetent as you claim it is. And then say, oh, look, government's just as in- incompetent and ineffective as I claimed it was after you've sabotaged it. And then use that as an excuse to gut government and take power, like just assert power control over it. Um, yeah. I think that that's been the playbook for a while. Well, I think we need to... And I think... Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think like this type of stuff is related to what we were just previously talking about with the voting rights in Ohio, for instance. There is no voter fraud problem, and they couch their ideas for enacting these laws, and Americans are worried about election integrity. Well, why are Americans worried about election integrity? Because Donald Trump and his toadies for the last two years have ginned up this entirely conspiratorial false narrative making Americans worried about election integrity or a certain mm-hmm. segment of them. So it's, yeah. it's not like there's these, these, this natural grassroots concern about election integrity. They ginned up this controversy and then used it to enact draconian laws that punish voters and hurt election integrity. Like, <laughs> So it's all it's kind of that same game, right? You know, attack government, make it look incompetent, defund it, um, don't give it the resources, starve it, sabotage it, and then say, look at how bad it is. Um, kind of the same thing with these elections. They say they use false premises and fake information to say that, oh, our elections are under attack. Then they attack our elections. And and that's how you get these autocratic tendencies and these these attacks on voters and elections themselves. Yeah, I mean, I'm really worried about your guy, Jim Jordan. I mean, he this committee that he has stood up uh, on the weaponization of government. I mean, that's what he calls it. He's standing up a committee yeah. in the in the House, right, to 
to tell ordinary Americans that our government is our enemy. Right. right? Our enemy. I mean, it's right. And the IRS. Um, right. And I, right. Everybody, like 80 percent, maybe 90 percent of Ohioans, their federal income tax is payroll deductions. Right. They get a check. The boss takes, you know, FICA and, and stuff out of the check. It goes to the government. And it's an overpayment. And then you wait months for the government to pay you back because you paid too much. Too much was taken out. They don't like they want to make that problem worse by like not letting the IRS upgrade its technology and firing everybody who works there um, so that guys like Donald Trump, with all the money for the lawyers in the world to hide their income, can get away with hiding their income. How is that? How are people buying that or are they? Um, I don't think most people are. I think a certain segment of viewers from a certain cable TV um, news station might buy it because they're going to be fed a lot of information to try to reinforce those beliefs. But I don't think the vast majority of Americans will buy it. Um, and that's and that's because, I mean, it's all, every allegation is kind of an admission, right? Like who tried to weaponize the machinery of federal government more than Donald Trump? Donald Trump thought that the federal government was his personal play toy to go after his enemies. There were a lot of people, even prominent Republicans, who resisted, who resigned before they would do his bidding on some of his craziest requests to weaponize government. And now, in a very Orwellian way, Jim Jordan is starting this weaponization of government um, investigation. Well, he should he should he should start with the two biggest. Um, critics of Donald Trump in the Justice Department who were subject to the two most invasive IRS audits, right? He, he you know, he exactly. char, he got, he weaponized the IRS. Yes, exactly. And, and then, and like, you know, the whole, the money for the new IRS agents, it's supposed to go after people who what, make more than $400,000 a year. That's the top 10% of the country. That's 90% of people would not be affected by that. You know? That's absolutely so, right. And it's not, and then really it's not even David to go after anybody as much as it is to speed things up so that like you and I can get our refunds, you know, when we, when, when we should, as opposed to three months late. Right. Exactly. So and I think that's the whole thing is going to be like this on every issue. You go down the line. I mean, just look at Jim Jordan's Twitter feed and it's uh, do I have to tweet? I'm just you, <laughs> you do it for me. I describe it to you pretty easily. He will self-contradict himself tweet by tweet um, because he's just being a troll. And now he's bringing his troll show to the U.S. Congress and the Judicial Committee. And that's all that it's going to be. And remember, again, since we're talking about good government and I was talking about gerrymandering and stuff, Jim Jordan is a person who has never faced a competitive election in his life because of gerrymandering. He's been gerrymandered into every position of power that he's ever obtained. He's never actually faced the voters in a real accountable way. And so he's in his position through... Deception and um, uh, manipulation of the system to put people like him in power. 
Um, and that's why I think gerrymander is so poisonous. You yep. get people who yep. have never faced electoral accountability like Jim Jordan, and they feel no compunction to be reasonable. They feel like they can just fly their freak flags and be as crazy as they want, lie as much as they want, manipulate as much as they want, and not care about any of the consequences. It's, I just want to point out that Jim Jordan... Um, is a creature of gerrymandering and yeah. be treated that way. So, but I'll tell you who's not a creature of gerrymandering uh, because you don't really gerrymander at the state level. You've got a new senator. Yes. Uh, yeah, a new senator, J.D. Vance, who who I thought beat a very strong candidate uh, in, in uh, Tim Ryan, who I thought ran a good campaign. But J.D. Vance won. So your state has definitely... I mean, you can't blame that on gerrymandering. That is a that was a that was a clear choice that was made. And so, without I don't want to relitigate that election, but I want you to look forward to me to to all of us and talk about what Sherrod Brown's uh, re-election is going to be like. It's going to be probably the hardest election that Sherrod's ever had. Um, I Ohio is a Republican state. To your point about the U.S. Senate, uh, we. We are a Republican state. We're about a 55-45 Republican to Democratic state. Um, And so, yeah, uh, the statewide elections, they go toward Republicans and whatnot. It's not a consequence of gerrymandering. But Ohio has definitely gotten more solidly Republican. We used to be much more of a swing state. That's not really happening very much anymore. Now, Sherrod has a lot going for him. He's... uh, a widely recognizable name. His name recognition is through the roof. He does a lot for the individual communities throughout Ohio. If you read small town Ohio newspapers, he's always got some like union camp for kids or something and Massillon or whatever, you know, like he's always doing these things for communities, getting money for communities. Um, just kind of wonkish policy stuff. But what it does is it gets his name into the local newspapers and it endears him to communities because they see him actually working for them. So he's built up a lot of credibility even across the aisle in Ohio because he's been such a a force for just kind of practical good things throughout Ohio. But he's going to face a stiff election in 2024 and I think that the Ohio Republicans smell some blood in the water there, a little vulnerability. So they're going to throw everything they've got at him for sure. It's going to be a harder election for Sherrod. It seems like he's not retiring. He's going to go for it. Um, so I just think it's going to be his toughest election yet. And it might hinge on what's going on in the presidential Um and where the national temperature is, because it is a presidential cycle. And I don't, I think the last presidential cycle he ran in was 2012, would have been with Obama's reelection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that Obama reelection and the auto industry bailout and stuff, that, that helped them both that year. Um, I think Sherrod's got a, a real run for it. And that's just with the generic Republican against him. A lot will depend on who the Republicans actually nominate to go against him as well, um, because they have some they have some weak candidates who could possibly show up again. 
And then they have a little bit stronger candidates who might actually give Sherrod a real challenge. So a lot will depend on that Republican primary as well. Yeah, I'm sure Mitch McConnell would like um, stronger candidates, but the base, the MAGA world, wants what they want. They want people who toe the line and say the impossible stuff, you know, will end women's rights to reproductive choice, will favor the wealthy, will uh, disenfranchise the poor, you know, whatever that agenda is that you know, we'll, we'll call everything CRT, we'll ban Dr. Seuss. I, I, you know, I mean, that I think it would be harder to keep that going, but who knows? I, I'm going back to Dr. Seuss. I'm sorry, because I listened to it. It was all recorded. There was this, I mean, yeah. it was so sad. This teacher was having a lovely conversation about a Dr. Seuss book with third graders. And some administrator interrupted the class like there was a crime that had to be stopped in the act and disrupted yeah. that class with these beautiful children and just said, no, this is improper. We cannot have Dr. Seuss in our classrooms. That's madness. It is madness. And this goes back to another thing that we were talking about earlier, too. This is also manufactured controversy. Now, that administrator might deeply believe what they're saying. But two years ago, none of this was ever on their radar. So why is this an emergency now that like this is blown up? Well, it's a very concerted manufactured effort nationally by people like this guy, Christopher Rufo, who goes around training state lawmakers and Republican politicians to make CRT an issue. They, they literally have slideshow presentations for right-wing politicians about how to gin up controversy and make people uh, lose their minds and worry about a non-issue. So, I mean, CRT is not even taught in the K-12 level. And it's not even. It was Doctor Seuss. It was a Doctor <laughs> Seuss book. Not like, exactly. and, and, and they've been reading Doctor Seuss for I don't know. I mean, it was around when I was a kid, and I get Medicare, so it's been it's been out there for a long time. You know, a long time, exactly. and suddenly. These are the same guys who say, oh, the left wing is guilty of cancel culture while they go in and cancel Dr. Seuss. Oh, yeah. The irony of that hypocrisy seems entirely lost on them, which is kind of wild. But, yeah, I mean, this is an AstroTurf campaign. It's been it's largely bankrolled and it's very intentional. It has nothing to do with facts or reality. It's just intended to create a general panic about an issue that they think is useful for them in the culture wars. It's not anything serious about what's actually happening in education or even caring about education. What really drives me crazy about that is that I come from a family of educators. My mom was a teacher for 40 years. My sister's a teacher now. My grandparents were teachers. Whole family of educators. Education is going through a really tough time right now. Teachers are burned out. They're experiencing behavior problems like they've never seen before. Classrooms are getting chaotic. They're going through a lot of trouble. They have serious issues that that our government, if they're serious, could really help them on. Instead, they're just ginning up these fake controversies and getting teachers and administrators attacked by parents over things that aren't even true. And they're making their lives harder 
More teachers are leaving the profession. We're hurting our kids. We're hurting our education. And we're doing it all for a political performance that is based on nothing but wild-eyed conspiracies. And so all aimed at weakening our democracy, all aimed at yeah. weakening our democracy. So, so Vladimir Lenin, who, you know, you can have um, you can have autocracies from the left or the right. It's in our history. We've seen both. Absolutely. And Lenin was a left wing dictator. But, you know, during World War One, as the Russians were freezing and slogging and getting, you know, he's he said the worse, the better. The, the more we can have our people suffer, the better the chances are they'll overthrow the government. Um, yeah. And, and I, I put Jim Jordan right there with Vladimir Ilyich Lenin as a as an autocrat who wants to make Americans lives worse in everything he does. And it doesn't matter. There are no doesn't there are no facts. It doesn't matter if you catch him on one thing, you'll change the subject and go to the next outrage because keeping us outraged, keeping us worried, keeping us scared and making sure the government can't do anything to help us is his path to autocratic power in America. I think you're exactly right. Yes, that's the game. Um, Well, boy, we need to say that loudly because January 6th, two years ago, people go, oh, that was the insurrection. But in fact, it was just one battle in an ongoing insurrection, the most violent battle. But but um, this battle continues. And it, in, this is the first time in American history that the people's house, the House of Representatives of the United States is led by a majority that does not believe in democracy. They voted against certifying the last election. They are creating the conditions to to damage the democracy and everything they do. This has never happened before. Yeah, right. It's, uh, it, we're in unprecedented times for sure. And the, um, the drunks have gotten the keys to the car, unfortunately, you know? Um, well, great. I mean, yeah, if they would just, scary. you know, get in an accident and get killed, they, they would be the ones who would hurt, but they're going to take us all down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's and as you say, it's not for I mean, the cynicism behind it is just gobsmacking really because it's not like they're running on any real issues. I mean, these are all manufactured controversies. Like <laughs> they're so divorced from truth in so many ways that it's it's almost a political tactic because how do you how do you even deal with people who aren't living in reality who insist on an alternative reality? You know, yeah. Um, yeah. But it's a scary uh, time and very disappointing to me that two, two years after the sacking of the U.S. Capitol, the people who instigated it were given the reins of power. That's just yeah, deeply disturbing to me. Deeply disturbing. Okay, I, let's end with because we're almost out of time. Just just tell me. Is, do we know anything about how J.D. Vance is beginning his term, or is he just hiding? So far, he's been very quiet. Um, okay. I think yeah. uh, no, he well, hasn't made any splashes yet. Um, good. So, yeah. Well, right, then, then let's turn. Then, then let's ignore that, and I'm going to ask you a different question. Because of all the things we've talked about, um, the role of journalism is so unimaginably important right now. Credible journalism. How are you 
um, how are you guys doing and what's the state of journalism in Ohio? Well, the OCJ, Ohio Capital Journal, is doing well. Uh, the, we're part of a national nonprofit called States Newsroom, and that nonprofit journalism model seems to do it, be doing well because there are so many people out there who do value good journalism and think yep. it's worth paying for by donating and supporting us. So States Newsroom is growing in different states. We we just opened in South Dakota and Kentucky this past year. We're, we've got plans to open in other states coming up soon here. So we're continuing to grow. OCJ is doing great. We get a lot of support. We always welcome more support, but we're very appreciative. But the state of journalism itself, I mean, we're seeing the same patterns that we've seen. We've uh, uh, Gannett just closed a series of local newspapers called This Week. And so you're just you're seeing more cuts to local journalism, more struggles to traditional papers, uh, more layoffs of traditional paper journalism. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's that's really hard to take because I know these reporters and they're really good and they're really valuable. Their work is really valuable to our communities. So it's tough to take. And I just hope that nonprofit journalism can grow at the pace that legacy journalism seems to be uh, falling because we need these, we need journalists in our communities, keeping a watch on our city councils, doing accountability journalism, because if they aren't there watching out for the taxpayers and the citizens and the voters, then there isn't anybody to do that job. And it's desperately needed, especially when democracy is under such attack. Okay. Well, that I think is where I'm going to let you go because it's a really important point in the time we live in. Um, everybody, we, we were talking with David DeWitt, who uh, leads the Ohio Capital Journal, and you, as you've heard, a um, passionate citizen determined to have uh, the folks in government held accountable by decent, honest, hardworking, fair, accurate, balanced journalism. David, it's always a pleasure. Okay, we're taking a break for the news, and I'll see you on the other side. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Welcome back, everybody. A little after 2 o'clock here in the upper Midwest, and I am moving mm, northwest from Ohio, where we just were, to Michigan. Um, I'm joined by Craig Mauger of the Detroit News. He covers government and politics. You've heard him here before. Very thoughtful man. And has a different story in Michigan than in Ohio. Craig, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. It is Saturday. Thank you. So um, Michigan's doing well. I mean, oh my gosh, you have a huge tax revenue growth and an enormous budget surplus. Talk about that and what uh, what that means. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a moment here in Michigan. Uh, previously, for, you know, decades, Democrats have not had unified control of state government. And that's one of the things that has contributed to the surplus that we currently have in this state is because in the past term, the past uh, four years, we had a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature. Revenues were coming in above expectations, and they could not agree on how to spend that money. 
whether to give some of it back to taxpayers in the form of some types of tax cut, whether to spend billions more on projects across the state. So some of this money just sat there. And now we're at a point where in November, Democrats won control of the state House and the state Senate for the first time in 40 years. Governor Whitmer won re-election, and now because the past legislature couldn't agree on how to spend that money, Democrats are coming into power with $9 billion in surplus funds to choose what to do with. Well, so that's pretty amazing. I mean, it isn't just that there's a surplus funds that they can use for government purpose. It's amazing that Michigan's economy has revved back so much that it generated so much additional revenue. I mean, I think I think that's definitely part of it. I mean, I, I think we have an economy that is doing well when you look at the em- uh, unemployment rate, when you look at some of the jobs announcements that the state has scored in recent years, uh, quite a few electric vehicle developments we've won. Uh, that's, that's good news. I mean, I think there are still economic challenges. And some of this surplus is due to the fact of how consumers have changed their spending habits during the COVID-19 pandemic um, that has led to additional state funds. Uh, I mean, so there's a lot going on here that's put us at this moment, but regardless of what put us here, it's, it's a moment where uh, it could be a, you know, an inflection point in the state's history to have that much money to decide how to, you know, direct. Yeah. So what are the, what are the, the Democrats who are in charge first talk about what their plans are, And then let's talk about what the GOP's plans might be. Yeah, the Democrats have not laid out all the plans, all of their plans for how they'll hand out all of this money. But they are looking to start off this term. They had their first session day of the year on Wednesday. Again, the first time in nearly 40 years that you had a House and Senate convening and they were both controlled by Democrats in Michigan. And they're they're setting out to start the term with some type of tax cut. In 2011, uh, we had a Republican governor and a Republican legislature. They rewrote the state's tax code. And one of the changes that they made that was really controversial is they changed how retirement income was taxed. Uh, There has been a pursuit of uh, repealing that policy for the last decade. And now Democrats are in power and they, they are vowing to make good on the promise to repeal the extra taxes on retirement income. So that's one thing they want to do. And then the other thing that they're setting out to do right here at the beginning is to expand the earned income tax credit at the state level in Michigan. This is a tax credit that um, benefits primarily low to moderate income workers. Uh, Right now, uh, at the state level, taxpayers in Michigan who qualify for that get 6% of the the federal credit. Uh, They want to bump that up to 20 to 30%. So across both of those tax cuts, that would be a billion dollars in, in, in tax drops for, for the residents of Michigan. I, I assume that a large portion of this surplus will also be poured back into schools. That has been a promise of the Democrats as they campaign this year to continue record funding investments for schools. So that's probably something else we'll see later this year. And I think, didn't they also um, have um, some bills uh Related to workers' rights, I want to I want to say uh, prevailing wage and right to work laws, things like that. 
Definitely. So on on Thursday, they introduced their first bills of the new legislative term, basically laying out what their priorities are going to be. In addition to the tax cuts, they're looking to repeal the state's right to work law. Republicans put the right to work law in place in 2012. It drew national attention in this in the state where labor plays such a prominent role. Uh, there were thousands of people that showed up at our state capitol to protest over this. And now Democrats are eyeing and, and planning to repeal that law. And then equally as important is uh, a couple of years ago in 2018, Republicans uh, repealed this prevailing wage law that we had that essentially said, that on public construction projects, you have to pay wages that are essentially collectively bargained. The, the rate of those wages was tied to collectively bargained projects. Uh, Republicans took that off the books. Democrats are now planning to put it back on the books. So these, these would be significant victories for Democrats and groups that support them and really massive defeats for Republicans who had worked for many, many years to make both of those policy changes. And now here, after these, this historic election defeat in November, they're going to uh, get both of those policies likely um, taken off the books. Yeah, I mean, just from where I sit now, again, th- this is a conservative versus progressive argument, the kind that America used to have and that I welcome. And I welcome my conservative fellow patriot Americans to disagree with me. But I think that these changes that you're talking about are very good for working Americans and not a very big burden on uh, companies and, and on the state. I think rather very lifts the bottom and the middle, and that's good for everyone. That it's a different kind of argument than the one about should we have a democracy or not, which is also going on. Um, but you guys handily uh, crushed that a little bit in, in, in this last election cycle. But it's not gone yet. So let me um, ask you about the Republicans. What now? They're regrouping, right? They're trying to figure out who's going to lead them, um, uh, and they still have this fake elector problem hanging over them. Yes. Right. Michigan was a state with a with a slate of fake electors. So just remind everyone where the investigation into that is. And um, I understand there's some new litigation that wants to get financial damages. Tell everybody about that. Yeah. So in the, we'll just go back to the beginning here. I mean, on December 14th. 2020, when the presidential electors for Michigan were meeting inside the state capitol to cast the state's 16 electoral votes for Joe Biden, a separate slate of 16 Republicans were convening in the basement of the GOP headquarters in downtown Lansing and holding a a kind of fake electoral ceremony where they ended up signing a certificate that they submitted to the Congress and to the National Archives saying that actually Biden did not win Michigan's election. It was Trump who had won the state's 16 electoral votes, even though Biden had won the state by 154,000 votes on Election Day. So this has been a matter of much contention and consternation in this state since this occurred in December 2020. Originally, our attorney general, Dana Nessel, had referred the investigation into these electors to the federal government because the federal government is probing this kind of orchestrated campaign that occurred in seven states to challenge the outcome of the election. 
the federal government, the DOJ, has been investigating this, but we haven't gotten much news about what they found, if they're actually pursuing some of these electors. And it appears that our attorney general has gotten frustrated with how long this has taken. And now she is taking this investigation back under her uh, office's powers. And she reopened the investigation last week saying she's going to probe these electors and determine if laws were broken. And she has stated publicly many times that she believes they did break the law. She has cited at the forefront of this a state law that we have against election-related forgery, someone who publishes, creates, or files a false document with the intent to defraud. She has said that she believes these Republican electors broke that state law. So on that front, that's where we are with the criminal investigation. And then there was civil litigation filed this week by three of the Biden electors against the fake uh, Republican electors, suing them for $25,000 in damages and asking a judge to declare their actions illegal. So these electors are, you know, still front and center here uh, two years later. And it's, it's something that, you know, I, I think about often that th- this occurred. A lot of the details are public. We know what happened. I mean, the facts are clear and there has been no uh, no charges brought so far. And we'll, we'll see how long that lasts and whether the attorney general follows through or not. Well, Dana Nessel is tough and smart, and um, I, I um, have confidence in Merrick Garland, but I, too, am um, frustrated with the length of time it is taking to um, hold people to account. I know they've held a lot of people, uh, um, the folks who invaded the Capitol on January 6th, but that was just one day in an ongoing insurrection, right? They, I mean, we have, a, we have a problem that continues to this day, and its leaders – and some of the people who were deeply involved, like the fake electors, need to be held account. And if she's going to do it, more power to her. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting dynamic, too, that, uh, you know, has been on my mind. It seems like the DOJ is really focused and targeting the Trump's campaign, the Trump campaign's orchestration of all of this. Um, you know, if you look at some of the subpoenas they've done even recently, they're looking at the communications with various local government agencies with different people from the Trump campaign. And I think that leaves some of the officials at the state level, like in Michigan, where the attorney general is saying, hey, you know, I believe these people on the ground violated the law. So while you're spending all of this time going if they're the people at the top of this, this, this plot, you know, what about these people at the bottom? They need to be held accountable and it's taking too long. It's an interesting kind of uh, situation where uh, the federal government, I think, is targeting the big players that orchestrated all of this. And, and you have some state officials who are saying, what about the people in our state who were involved in it? Well, I think the um, by taking it on, as she is, she's putting pressure on DOJ. And um, yeah, I think that's right. I, I welcome that. Right. I mean, the, the you know, DOJ has always been a we're the big guys. Get out of our way. We'll take care of it. You know, in our own time. Don't interfere. We're we're, we're the biggest out there. And I, I and you know what? I like them. I am confident that they're professional and doing their job, but it is too darn slow. And Americans need to know that we will not put up with people trying to wreck our democracy this way. 
it, it, it's going to be fascinating because some of these electors that, that are involved in this are powerful people within our state Republican Party and continue to be influential people. And even beyond the 16 people that signed the false document, there were other people that were involved in coordinating this at the state level, encouraging mm-hmm. these people to put their name on this paper. And you just don't know where all that is going to lead. Um, and and it's, it's, it's unfortunate that there has not been a decision and we don't have the facts of everyone who was involved in this still two years later. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, that's a problem. Real problem. All right. Let me change subjects and talk to you about your long serving Senator Debbie Stabenow. She's told us that she is done. She has given her service to her country and it's time to uh, move on. What is that election going to look like? I mean, it's going to be it's going to be a, a major one. I mean, it's going to be on the, on the national stage. I, I would expect it to be a competitive election. I mean, some of our recent U.S. Senate races have been somewhat uh, contested. I mean, they have ranged from a few point victory in 2000 for Gary Peters against Republican John James to. You know, when Gary Peters first won his seat, he won yep. by double digits over his Republican yep. opponent. I mean, that's kind of the range you would expect as the Republicans look at their map of trying to take back the Senate, that they're at least going to want to try to keep this in play. I mean, there is a long bench of Democratic congressmen and women and, and state officials who could run for this seat. The Republicans have a much shorter bench of potential candidates. And the Republican Party at the state level has had problems raising money uh, to spend in these races. We know these races can cost, you know, $200 million to run. So, I mean, it's going to be fascinating. I mean, it's definitely, I think, as someone who watches these these contests in Michigan, you start out assuming that this is a Democratic-leaning seat and the Democrats have an advantage. But that doesn't mean the Republicans can't find the right candidate and, and make it much closer a lot of it's going to be who can the Republicans get through the primary? Can they get a candidate that appeals to voters in the middle through their primary election? So far in past races recently, they have not been able to do that. They've been getting candidates through primaries who uh, don't appeal to those voters in the middle. And that has led to Democratic victories. So that that's going to be something that's significant for the GOP uh, coming up in 2024. Yeah, uh, right. You have a crazy uh, GOP base. Who who's the head of who's going to be the head of the uh, Republican Party in this next cycle? It's a great question. They're going to the GOP delegates in the state pick who is the state party chair. They're going to be convening in early February. There's a slate of 11 people, the most ever, according to one of the campaigns to seek this position running to be the state party chair. The two people who are the favorites for the position, both were on the ballot in November and lost. One of them was Matt DiPerno. He ran for attorney general and lost. The other is Christina Caramo. She ran for secretary of state and lost. Both of them made their political names by uh, advancing false claims about the 2020 presidential election. Both of them were previously endorsed by Donald Trump. Uh, it, they are people that have struggled to raise money from mainstream GOP donors, and that will be a challenge for the state party going forward, regardless of which of these 11 candidates wins the chair race in February. Yeah. 
I, I think the the crazies have captured the GOP there, and that um, it's going to be a long time before that problem gets fixed. On the other side, uh, my friend Lavora Barnes has a challenger, but um, I don't expect that to be a, a big problem. Do you? No, I mean, I would fully expect Lavora to get another term as chair of the state party. I mean, if you look at the record of wins that Lavora Barnes has been able to establish over the last two elections, it's pretty impressive, and it's very likely that she'll get another term. I mean, she is getting national attention for what she's been able to organize in in Michigan. So uh, I don't expect that Democratic race to be very exciting. No. Yeah. So, so, um, I, I want to tell you, uh, I think it was a year and a half ago. It was, I was up in, of all places, Antrim County, which for those of you who are, wow. don't know Michigan, it, it's way up north and it was, um, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful, but it was also the site of the first sort of fake audit that pretended the election was stolen. And all kinds of crazy started in Antrim County. Um, and I was there and I was at a bar. And the guy next to me looks at me and he's not, you know, sure whether who I am. And we start to talk. And he's like, we can't let our country, you know, go. He's beginning that whole MAGA stuff with me. And I'm saying, yeah, no, we can't let our country go. And he said, we can't let them take over our country. And I'm like, yeah, we can't let them take over our country. (laughs) It was a conversation like this that was going on for a long time. And, you know, he's looking at me like, who is that? Like, what side are you really on? And I'm like, nothing. And in the end, I say to him, you know what? Everybody gets to vote. We're going to count every vote. And nobody's going to pretend that this stuff is fake when it's not. And the voters are going to have their say. And he grabbed his drink and he left in a huff. And I just think about that because it's so like he was willing to be my friend and talk to me if he thought I was on the same side in his fantasy. Right. But as soon as we had a different point of view, that was it. There's no bridge. There's nothing. We're going our different ways. It's it's an interesting, you know, uh, scenario for the Republicans in states like Michigan, where they have in the past, when they have won, they have been able to reach out and speak to those voters in the middle, reach out and speak to voters in suburban areas that, you know, aren't fully tied to the Democratic Party, but want a more moderate option on the GOP side. The Republicans are just caught here. And the story that you're telling is, is, is a fascinating one. I mean, I think I think about Georgia all the time, where Georgia in the gubernatorial primary last cycle was able to stop a Trump challenge to their Republican governor. And I think a lot of that had to do with some of the losses that they took in the previous cycle. They said, we're not going to do that again. And I think it's going to be interesting in Michigan, where the GOP just suffered some of the worst losses that they have ever suffered in this state. And the question is going to be, what direction do they take? And I think that U.S. Senate race that you identified is going to be the test of of that. Are they going to put up a candidate who has a chance to win? Or are they going to put up a candidate who kind of doubles down on what they did in the 2022 election? And for the GOP, I mean... They that that is going to be a, the biggest decision of the next cycle for them. 
how do they? But how do they do it, Craig? I mean, you, you had you yeah. know Betsy DeVos, sort of your your mainstream GOP, went all in with Donald Trump, and and therefore helped empower the completely radical elements of the GOP to take over. And I I just think they they now control the power of the Republican Party. I don't know how they get people to show up to a primary to get rid of the radicals. And if they did, they can't win a general because none of them will stay home. So I think they're stuck as this sort of permanent um, uh, virus that we can't quite get rid of that's out there saying America should fail, America should fail, America should fail. And we should replace it with, I don't know, Donald Trump. I, I, they're I trapped. think, I think that it's going to be interesting to watch if one of the more moderate options for the U.S. Senate, someone like a former U.S. Representative Peter Meyer, who voted to yeah. impeach Donald yeah, yeah. Trump and then lost his yeah. reelection bid in the primary from the Grand Rapids area. There's a lot of eyes on him. He is someone that could win a general election race. The question is, could he get through a primary? If he decides, I'm going to get into this U.S. Senate contest because I believe it's winnable in the primary, I think that will say a lot about what the 2024 campaign is like. And I've talked to a lot of Republican consultants in in the last week or so who've said, you know, one of the problems with the Trump backers is that they'll look at a race like this and they won't be able to decide on one candidate and there'll be six candidates that come from that type of faction of the GOP in the race. So if you get a whole bunch of those kind of far right pro Trump candidates, does that provide a path for a Peter Meyer through the Republican primary? This is something to watch closely. But first, he's got to identify that that's even possible and, and, and something worth taking a risk on. So watch him closely. I mean, watch to see if he starts indicating he's interested in this race. I haven't heard anything from him yet, but definitely a name to watch. That's really interesting. I, 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 I would like uh, conservatives to take back. The, I mean, I don't agree with them, but I'd like them to take back the Republican Party. They, uh, they at least aren't trying to undo the democracy. But I just see this crowd as like, let's break everything possible. <laughs> let's make sure nothing works. Let's, let's destroy public schools, which they really tried to do in Michigan. They did in even more in Ohio. Let's destroy. Um, I mean, um, let's go after even a great University of Michigan. Let's go after them too. Let's just cut funding. Let's and, and and to her credit, I mean, what Governor Whitmer was able to save and build and do against the opposition uh, in her, you know, in the last term, um, she's going to have a different challenge when it's all Democrats because there's nobody to blame. There's no foil. You just have to deliver, and you have to deliver. For a lot of people, it's, um, that's not easy either. Um, uh, is she showing any interest in other offices? She is not. She has indicated she is not interested in running for this U.S. Senate seat. So I would not expect in any way for her to get involved in that race. There's lots. Yeah, of- I was sort of thinking uh, presidency. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's where I was going to go next. I mean, there's lots of discussion in in and around Lansing about what will happen if there is some type of opportunity for her to run for president. I mean, so far she has said, I'm going to serve the full four years 
as governor, meaning if Joe Biden didn't run again, she would not run for president. But, you know, if that happened, uh, she has she has ambition. She has shown interest in making a name for herself nationally. So, I, I mean, it will, it will be very interesting to see if and if and if and if all those things happen, what she does. But those are all hypotheticals at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, of course. For sure. But she, I think she's proven to be an enormously talented governor, an enormously talented politician, um, and, um, y- you know, shown the kind of courage that I think would um, do well on a national stage. She, I mean, what she did in the November election, I mean, winning that by, you know, basically double digits is is incredibly, you know, it was incredibly impressive as a victory. I mean, this is a state where our races of late have been very close. They've been hotly contested. To pull off what she did was an impressive win for her, and she has a lot of capital, political capital right now. She's got the complete control over the legislature. She can set the agenda um, this is really quite a moment for her, and it will be something to watch to see where, what she does with it over the next two years. I mean, as you stated, there are an incredible amount of risk here for her as well. Democrats could overreach. Democrats could have, you know, something could happen with the economy. If we do go into a recession, what will happen with her leadership and how people view it? There's a lot of risk here. Um, but she has the, you know, she, she has a major advantage of having the complete power. Now, um, there's no Republican standing in her way, so we'll see what happens. Yep. Really interesting. And there's no one standing in the way because of the utter humiliation of the Michigan Republicans as they fully embraced crazy election denialism and the good people of the state told them to jump in the, in either of the great lakes that surround Michigan. <laughs> Uh, Craig, as always, it's a great pleasure to catch up, um, and I look forward to our conversations throughout this election cycle. Well, I thank you for having me on and let me chat for a little bit about Michigan politics, which I love to talk about. So thanks for having me. You bet. All right, everybody, we're going to take a quick break and uh, keep our ge- geographical hopping. Uh, Congressman Jan Schakowsky uh, from Illinois is up next. Stay tuned. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Welcome back, everybody. And it is my great pleasure to be joined again by Congressman Jan Schakowsky. Hi, Jan. Hi. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you, Edwin. Well, wow. (laughs) So you're in the minority. Um, It's a wow. Yeah. I'm I. Let's just talk. I have so much to talk about, but let's talk about the disarray on display over 15 votes um, when when you guys went back there. I mean, I thought the coffee of coffee, sorry, the popcorn was a really nice touch. (laughs) You know, the popcorn, which, uh, you know, also was to lighten up the atmosphere a little. But also we have um, uh, 25 new uh, members of, of Congress. Excellent, incredible members. Um, and, you know, they came uh, in the hopes of being sworn in, their family, their friends. Um, you know, this, is a, this was supposed to be a big day, as it has been in history. But, of course, it took another three days um, in order to get, a, uh, to, to get a speaker. 
But I want to tell you, they were on display as so inept, so unable to um, do the most um, sort of everyday thing of governance um, to, to, to be able to, to get a speaker. And their weakness was really there for all Americans to, uh, to, to see. So that was the upside, I think, in a way. Um, yeah, I mean, Jan, they brought C-SPAN's ratings up. That's, that's hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah, maybe, although, you know, toward the end, there was almost uh, fisticuffs, there was, some, yep. um, you know, possible violence taking place. Um, it was all, uh, obvious that in the 14th round that uh, McCarthy thought he had the votes and he mm-hmm. didn't have the votes. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, if someone knocks me over the head when I'm sleeping, I'm just going to get up and say, Jeffrey's. Jeffrey. <laughs> so many times. Was, and, and most of the time that we nominated Hakeem Jeffries to be the speaker, he had the majority of votes in this yep. series of votes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I mean, I, Democratic unity, uh, and I know we are not a unified party in point of view. We are a very big tent party, but we figured out how to govern. And, and that requires some yeah. unity. And I'm just so impressed with, you know, the I mean, what that what you figured out led to. I think the 117th Congress is historic in what you guys exactly. achieved. It's historic. And it, it really is. The, the things that we were able to deliver directly for the American people. And by the way, Edwin, we're about to see even more of the results of the 117th Congress because a lot of the infrastructure pro, uh, projects that um, are going to happen as a result of the uh, infrastructure mm-hmm. bill are now mm-hmm. going to actually be built in communities all over the country. So a lot of things that we did last session are now going to come to fruition and people are going to see it in their lives and in their communities. Yep. And while they're seeing the benefits of a vital democracy making our lives better on the one hand, they're going to see the uh, clown show of a Republican House determined to tell us all that we live in a terrible place and government can't do anything. And people are going to know, know the difference. One of the things that is really shocking to me is, did they take any lesson from the last election? Didn't they notice, for example, that the majority of Americans, Republicans, and uh, and Democrats, of course, are against taking away uh, reproductive rights, people controlling their own bodies? Didn't they notice that people were not amused by all of the suggestions about doing more investigations or doing things like cutting Social Security and Medicare, you know, they're still on that trail right now. And I I don't know that they learned anything at all from the failure of a red wave in the last election. I'm afraid, Jan, that they did learn something, and it's terrifying. Because for the first time, the, the first time in the history of our country, we have the majority in the House of Representatives that doesn't right. want democracy to succeed. They don't want it to succeed. So I think they figured out in the last election that the public isn't with them, so they might as well wreck the democracy so that they can get what they want some other way. 
I am that worried. Oh, I see what you're saying. You're saying they did get it, but rather than change their ways, they'll just double down. Well, I yes, think what, it's what it looks like. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really afraid. I've never like we've had houses of representatives <laughs> that you and I would have disagreed with on almost everything they've done in the past. But I've never seen one that wants the government to fail. I mean, this idea of Jim Jordan's to have a, a committee. What did he call it on the weaponization of government? Really? Yeah. I mean, just hand read hand read me to every militia in, out in every forest in America. It's it's just really it is really remarkable. He is definitely going to uh, you know going to continue along that route. Um, yep. There's no question. Um, we you know we call it the um, insurrection. Uh, protection act uh you know because that's what they that's really what they want to do to set up a committee the insurrection uh, protection committee that's going to investigate any of the investigations about january 6th um yeah no it's bad i mean january 6th was one battle in an ongoing insurrection that's how i look at it it was a terrible battle right but it was just one, and the insurrection is continuing, and now it's got control of the House. Boy, do we need you to well, slow them down out anyway, there. I'm, I'm not even so sure how um, far, how, how long they're going to get away with all this. You know, of course, we saw um, a, a bunch of, re, of Republicans in, um, in New York um, who lives in George Santos's uh, mm-hmm. community, you know, the uh, incredible um, liar and fraudster. But I think he's an embarrassment to most of the Republicans, the ones in the House I do too. as well. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and of course, what we're seeing is that uh, McCarthy is so desperate. What happens? If there really is some sort of a, a criminal indictment, uh, uh, again, because there are, are reasons for it, uh, against Santos, and he would have to leave, there would be a special election and Democrats would yeah. win. Yep. So he can't afford that. So he's sticking with this guy who has made up his life, his whole <laughs> resume. And maybe cheated on the money, for, right? Violated the, the law on his campaign. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Wow. But, uh, do you get to vote one day that say I have no confidence in the speaker and force a vote? Or is that all, can that only be in the Republican caucus? You know, they, I think my understanding is that, that one of our colleagues on the Democratic side is thinking about uh, is thinking about doing that. But I, I think we ought to leave that um, to the Republicans. I, I don't think they're going to hesitate. I cannot see how that, you know, because he had to give in that would allow only one member of Congress to yeah. um, require a vote to get rid of him as Speaker of the House. I don't think he's going to make it too long before someone decides to do that. I think it's I don't either. Be. I, think it I mean, there's going to be a day when three people are out sick. You know, I mean, it, anything could happen. Well, that's the other matter. That they decided um, to to get rid of proxy voting, which of course we had during the pandemic, and, yep. and even now they had to call back people. Uh, one of our colleagues, uh, a Republican whose wife had just given a uh, had mm-hmm. birth to a baby, someone that was mm-hmm. 
they had to get on planes and come back to cast their votes. Well, you know, stuff happens. You can't be there all the time and have your full of all your members there. I don't know what they're going to do. I really don't. We had only a four vote margin in the House in the 117th Congress. And had it not been for proxy voting, it would have been a real problem because people did get COVID. People did get sick. People's children were in in need to, to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know how they govern. I don't see it. Well, they don't want a government. They want to wreck government. I mean, it's crazy. But you're on the, you know, I, you, you might actually, because they are so incompetent and really because their majority is so small and they don't know what to do with it, you might get some things done in, in this Congress yet. And I'm thinking here of like pathways to citizenship. And you, you might be able to do that. You might be able to protect Social Security over them. I mean, th- those are on well, your agenda, yeah, I think. Well, let me just say, when it comes to Social Security, if they want to uh, go after it, I say, make my day. Um, there is no person, I think, in the, in the Congress that uh, thinks it's a good idea to cut, uh, to, I mean, not in the Congress, in the, in the country, who thinks it's a good yep. idea to cut Social Security or Medicare. These are super popular, it's nonpartisan, not even bipartisan. Everybody agrees. Uh, agrees with that. So I dare them, um, dare them to, to do that. But I do want to say, so I have in the, in the past Congresses uh, been the chair of the subcommittee on consumer protection, just basic, making sure that products are safe for people yep. and working with, working with my Republican counterpart who will probably be the, the chair now, Gus Villarafis from Florida, who in many ways is just a very decent man. I mean, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a Republican um, and votes, votes with them most of the time, but, I really expect that we're going to continue to be able to get get things done because, you know, who doesn't want to uh, protect children and everyone else from dangerous products, things like that. So I'm hoping that we are going to be able to maybe not deliver in the huge big picture. Now, I'm not so sure about immigration. Think back. They have been fighting any kind of re- immigration reform for decades now. You know, um, Dick Durbin introduced more than 20 Mm -hmm. years ago to protect Mm -hmm. the dreamers, the young people have come to this this country, you know, and and we've never been able to get it done in the House and the Senate. The president for sure would would sign it. They have found that immigration is just a hot button issue. They can always point to the, uh, the, the border and the, and the chaos. And you remember Donald Trump saying that they were rapists and, you know, uh, et cetera, that, that were coming across. And they love having, uh, as a whipping boy, um, the, the, the border issues. So I don't know. I'm hoping with the help of the business community, you know, Every business needs employees right now. And the perfect thing would be to allow people to come legally to the United States, to get a work permit, to fill the many uh, vacant jobs that are there, Edwin. That would be such a bonanza for our economy. Yes, and good fighting inflation, too. Absolutely. It would be good for the... uh, 
for the economy and fighting inflation. Yep. So, yep. you know, but they, they, they like to, to pick the, the, the issues that really, um, you know, they think they can stir up people's worst selves. Um, and immigration has always been one. It's so ridiculous. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm actually a first-generation American. You're probably mm-hmm. second-generation, aren't you? Um, or third, yeah. But yeah. Third, or yeah. third generation, yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah. oh, this is a this is a nation of immigrants. That's who we are. And, yes, right, and um, have benefited so much from, and continue to benefit from people coming Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but the the, it, the the chaos in yeah. uh, Latin America. It's also something that just on a humanitarian level, I mean, people are risking everything to come here because life is so awful. Um, we, we, you know, we can do better as a global leader, too. You know, some of the people that went to the border, some of the Democrats that went to the border, um, it is not just people from Central and South America. Um, there are a lot of Russians. I think we have to reconsider people who are fleeing Russia. They want mm-hmm. to come to the United States. They are really treated badly right now under the, the law when they come um, as um, suspected spies or something. I think mm-hmm. we have to have a, a, a really good um, uh, vetting process to see if some people just want to get the hell out of Russia um, for so many reasons. And the authoritarianism is one of them. Um, but but you're absolutely right. Some people are willing to risk their lives because their lives are at risk in many countries south of the border, and they can't afford to wait to to come. And we and um, seeking asylum, asylum is legal in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. The, um, and and that we need a process. You know. Um, I saw one of my Senate colleagues, Chris Murphy, who I, I, I just respect so much, saying one of the things that we could do is where, po- where possible to create um, a, uh, an asylum application before people actually come to cross the border. That mm-hmm. makes it possible in some places. And we don't really have a process like that that might, that might work. So I think that might be one administrative kind of remedy that would, or alleviation, if not remedy, to, uh, to, to help. We need to do something better than is happening right now, though. Let's go from the uh, big international picture to the much more tailored uh, congressional district that you uh-huh. serve, because um, this was a budget cycle that um, allowed uh, uh, members of Congress to focus some money on their districts, which I know I we got away that. from for a while and we are back there. Um, and you uh, you did what, you know, good uh Good uh, politicians always do. You delivered some bacon. I am so thrilled. You know, for years we had what were called earmarks, understanding that members of Congress can look carefully at their district and um, bring home some money for maybe forgotten kinds of projects. 
Um, and that was just reinstated under Nancy Pelosi in the last uh, in the last couple of Congresses. And I was actually able to bring um, twenty six million dollars plus to the, the district. And just this week, I was uh, able to um, go to Glenbrook South, um, where the Glenbrook schools, both north and south, now have a, a health health uh, uh, it, it, right in their in their building, a health clinic for mm-hmm. students and for and for for faculty. You know, being able to do that, or in my community that I grew up in, the um, High Ridge Y YMCA mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. Club, was closed because they ran out of money. I was able to bring money to help um, open open that. Um, the um, Black Ensemble Theater could use some help for programs that serve youth in the in the communities there. So everything from art, from healthcare projects, um, fifteen different projects, infrastructure projects. You know, there's a really mm-hmm. dangerous intersection that we're able to give money to to uh, to, to fix. Uh, so it's really been just such a joy, um, and you know those things are going to mean a lot. Maybe not nationally and certainly not internationally, but in but in communities, it's really going to make a difference. Yeah, and I know there's pushback. People call it pork barrel and stuff like that. And yes, it does sometimes help win the votes you need. But it, but you can't expect a federal bureaucracy always to make decisions that um, the people in particular districts would want them to make. Um, and so it's it's really important that legislators be understood to also really understand their districts and have some say like that. Absolutely. If there's a, a mm-hmm. community that's had a real flooding problem, you know, that might, may, may, might not make it on the national allocation of what's going to help. But, you know, if we can add a little bit more money um, to help clean it up, or, you know, we I was able to get some money for the lead pipelines that we have in Evanston, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which are a hazard, especially for children, to have lead in the pipes. Um, and that has really helped. Uh, that will really help. So, you know, yeah. it's and, and by the way, it's certainly not all Democrats. Every, every member. Everybody does every it. Every member. Yep. They, yep. Yeah, they all have the opportunity to look around their communities and actually do something good for, for their communities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and this is what, um, you know, it's part of separation of power. The executive branch has to look at the country differently than the legislative branch. And this is a perfectly reasonable thing for the legislature to want to do. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really great. I did want to mention one of the um, dangers that we're facing right now. They call it raising the debt ceiling, which is not a well-understood thing. Janet Yellen, our Secretary of the Treasury, said by this coming Thursday that we will hit that limit. Of course, she's going to do everything she can using extraordinary means to extend it. Here's what the debt ceiling means. It means paying our bills for things that have already been spent. It's in the Constitution. We can't, we cannot default on debt 
that we owe. Um, and, and so, but the Republicans, we um, are, we won't be surprised to see, will say, oh, well, this is a reason for us to dramatically cut the budget. We're spending too much money on things like, you'll hear it, Social Security and, and, and Medicare and all kinds of things that ordinary people need. So this is a battle I expect to see emerging when we go back to Congress, not this coming week, but the next week. I'm so glad you raised this. And I talked about it at the beginning of the show, but that was hours ago. Um, Just so everybody knows, the deficit increased 40% when Donald Trump was president and the Republicans spent the money. Now we just have to pay for it. Right. This is this is we're paying for money. We're paying for things we've already approved and spent. This isn't new spending. This is not new spending, but it's also true that, um, you know, Trump was terrible, but Biden has actually lowered the debt since he's been president of the United States. Yeah, the deficit came way down. Lower than it was when he got it. Yeah. Yep. 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 But we have to pay our bills and the consequences are are. Well, they don't care, Jan. I, I, you heard me say, I, I think they would wreck the country. No, I, I right? agree. I agree. Um, and I, I don't That's know what to expect. Win. That's why we're going to win back the uh, the House, I believe, in two years, because people are going to are going to see that. But I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, no, no. I'm just really worried about this. I'm really worried that 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 there's you know nothing that can for. I mean, I assume the business roundtable and all of those those uh, uh, large Republican money folks with whom I disagree passionately about almost everything are going to put everything they can into making sure we don't default because of the consequences of our, on our economy. Exactly. Um, And that, that is where we're going to come together with the corporate community because it's a disaster for our economy. If we, um, shut down the government or we go into default. It's unthinkable. It's just unthinkable. They're, they're, the Republicans are capable of thinking about it and actually maybe even acting on it in order to extract the kinds of changes that they want. It's, it's really cynical. Right. But we're not negotiating. Oh, we learned our lesson before there. And the president has been very clear. He's not negotiating on the deficit. So yeah. we got to, you just got to be strong here and hope that the normal funders of the Republicans aren't going to be complicit in this terrible disaster. Uh, you know, we'll see. I think it'll come up, I think, um, sooner rather than later. And we'll see what shape it takes um, and what kind of diabolical proposals they're going to uh, offer the American people. Jan, um Nancy Pelosi was a great speaker of the House. I mean, I, like the best, I, the best in my lifetime by far, and maybe the best we've ever had. Most effective. I think that. Uh-huh. You know, I, I mean, I want you to name the rotunda after her. It's just incredible what she has done. I was able to do when you guys had such tiny majorities. Um, and I'm thinking of both the Affordable Care Act and all of the amazing stuff in the last Congress. Um, uh, you know Kevin McCarthy. I mean, just does he have a does he have a chance of having the character to to do 
to, to stand up to anybody and get anything done? You know, what, what we saw was Kevin McCarthy, in order to ultimately get the votes, to negotiate with the worst of the members of, uh, of the House of Representatives, the most radical, the most right-wing, the most extremist, in order to get their, their votes. The kind of negotiations that he um, was engaged in had nothing to do with what is good for the country or good for the mm-hmm. American people. And that's where, he, that's where he's at. Um, and so who knows all of the things that he agreed to. One thing we know, that he has agreed to put people like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene on, uh, on major committees. You may remember that at one point she was not allowed by the Republicans to be on any committee. She yep. is now a leader in the House of Representatives because that is what was required to get her support and on and on of people of that ilk. Um, and, and so I, I just, um, I, I don't think that he sat down and thought about what can we offer as Republicans that is going to make us attractive and popular and good for the American people or the American voters. No, that is not on his agenda right now. Nancy Pelosi brought values. She brought commitment. Over and over she would talk about for the children. This is what this is what we this is what we need to do. She never called a bill that she that that she didn't have the votes for, ever. Um, She got results. she yes. got incredible results, and I, yep. you know, I think in history she will go down as the most effective speaker that we have uh, that we have ever seen. I mean, she really had uh, enormous challenges, a small, tiny margin, the same margin that they have four votes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but we were able to pass the most progressive agenda. Um, I don't know, in decades, maybe ever. Um, And and her leadership was central to making that that, that happen. So the next two years, GM, the country is going to see the the impact of the votes that you cast in the last cycle, because the money is now coming out. We're going to see the infrastructure projects. Those of us who've reached a certain age are going to see some benefits in Medicare on our health, on our cost of drugs. I mean, a lot of things are going to roll out and Americans are going to feel them. And we're going to say this is because the 117th Congress did it. And it's going to be up against nothing from Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, let me just give you um, one example. On the first of this year, on the new year, then um, insulin. Uh, mm-hmm. Is uh, uh, thirty-five or twenty-five dollars? Whatever. Thirty-five. Yep. Uh, uh, yep. Yeah. Um, for for seniors, for people on Medicare, um, mm-hmm. Medicare patients can get a lot of additional free vaccinations, including mm-hmm. singles, which cause cost an average of you know something like eighty dollars if you have to buy a single. Mm-hmm. So a number of things. On the first of this year, now thanks to the Republicans, have gone into effect that people that people are going to see in their everyday lives, um, and on and on. I think for um, years to come, as these infrastructure projects roll out, 
the the um, now manufacturing of chips in the United mm-hmm. States of America that is going to help the, the supply chain and the economy. All these things that we did before are now going to come to fruition. Um, and it'll be funny to see some of the Republicans try and show up, and they will, at ribbon yep. cuttings. And it's important that we make sure everybody knows, well, you know. They voted against it. They voted yep. now. Well, uh, Congressman, it's once again a great pleasure to catch up. Um, We got to go because the news doesn't wait for anybody and it's coming in about 30 seconds. Um, You're the best to join me, and I'm so proud of your work. It's really wonderful for all of us. Thank you. Well, thank you. I'm proud of you too. Thank you. Okay. Bye. All right. We have the news, um, uh, and uh, stay tuned. AB Stoddard, uh, fabulous, is joining me when we come back. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Everybody, a little bit after 3 o'clock here in the Upper Midwest, and I'm joined um, by my friend, even though we have not met in person, uh, a very thoughtful journalist, uh, the associate editor and columnist at Real Clear Politics, A.B. Stoddard. Hi there. Well, maybe I'm not joined by A.B. Stoddard yet. Um, let's see what's happening. I apologize, everybody. You know, this is what happens on live radio sometimes. Jewel, um, uh, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. Wonderful. There you are. Okay, here we are. Thank you. I'm so happy you're back. It's great to be back. How are you? Um, You know, you and I last talked right before the midterms. So the first thing I want to say is, (laughs) I I, am, you know, um, that was quite a slog. Um, But I'm afraid the outlines of this struggle are clearer than they were before the before the midterms. Has the U.S. I mean, I keep saying it on the radio, but I don't know if it's true. I, I think it's true. Do you know, has the United States House ever had a majority that wants the democracy to fail? I, I know we've had I, we've had majorities who support limited democracies, right, where women don't vote or in the Jim Crow era. But I've never never really seen a majority that sought to overturn an election and continues to undermine our institutions and norms. That's really frightening. This is true. And so it's, 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 a, it's a paradox because we saw an election where enough voters were clearly concerned enough to be discerning, split their tickets, you know, come to thoughtful decisions and reject uh, extremists who are reckless and irresponsible and who were, openly, you know, lying about the last election and promising the voters they would be uh, messing with the next election. So the reaction to that is really heartening, Um, although a lot of it likely had to do with the Dobbs decision in terms of, you know, turnout in some of the most crucial places. But as a friend of mine who's a Democratic um, strategist says, you know, we're out of the ER, but we're still in ICU. And, and when you look at what's happening in the House Republican Conference, 
you see that the people rewarded with, you know, 11 of the 17 committee chairmen um, voted to decertify Joe Biden's election. And so obviously the front facing new influences in the party are all, you know, nut jobs. So it's, it is, it, it, it's not as if we had a resounding defeat of the election deniers and the liberal forces in the Republican Party, but we, have, we, we skirted by, right? We avoided the worst, um, and there's work to do. Uh, but the House Republicans, I think, are, are, yes, they can do a lot of harm, as you were just talking about with the Congresswoman, in terms of, actually pushing us into a debt default. I don't think that it's going to happen. I mean, I think in the, you know, in the end, we will not default and some, you know, political collapse will happen for McCarthy where all the Democrats work with a few Republicans and we, you know, we get through it. But between now and then, and of course, after that, uh, with all the investigations and all the chaos and all of the, um, just the, the recklessness, uh, and, and and as you said, you know, disregard for the institution, um, injury to the institution. Um, we're gonna we're gonna have a lot of pain. I think a lot of pain in the end will will be heaped upon themselves. I think that they are um, really going to be. I wrote this week that everyone will be running against uh, by the middle. Of, of 2024 when the when the nominating contest is over for the republic like when there's a republican nominee sort of the summer mm-hmm. of 2024 everybody will be running against the house republicans the house democrats will be the the, house, the senate democrats will be the senate republicans will be the republican nominee will be and of course whether it's joe biden or someone else running for president that person mm-hmm. will be as well the, the republicans have promised to be a nihilistic uh you know, a malignant force. And um, that's what we're going to get. But I think it's going to boomerang on them. I really do. That's really interesting. I mean, it, it, um, forever around the country, Democrats have run against Democrats. They've said in Montana, I take just the example of Steve Bullock, I'm not that kind of Democrat. I'm not one of those Democrats, he says, as he campaigns. He has said as he campaigned. Yeah. And, and, and that just means that just makes it more expensive for Democrats to win everywhere. And it reinforces ideas that may or may not be true, but are damaging for the Democratic Party. And now what you're promising, I hope, is that that joy is coming to the Republicans as they all run against being a Republican as it's, as it's characterized in the House. They, they, they're going to have to. Now, it is true that any governor, let's say Trump is not the nominee, uh, you know, whatever. Trump is a wreck, and I guess he wouldn't, as nominee, run against the House Republicans. But um, he might have to find some distance from them if he is. However, mm-hmm. let's say it's a governor. Um, it's Governor DeSantis or Governor Nikki Haley or Governor Asa Hutchinson or whatever. The, the, that person, of course, is going to run against Washington and say they're an outsider. Um, they, they don't. They don't. They can't be bothered with all this infighting in Washington. That's tried and true since the yep. dawn of time. But this will be different because there will be these apocalyptic fights between the nihilists who succeed in elevating themselves, raising small dollar donations, in, in, 
you know, increasing their relevance every single time they pick a fight, the establishment or Kevin McCarthy, the speaker. So they will continue to do it because they have no incentive not to. They haven't been disincentivized. They've been incentivized. And so in the end, someone like Rhonda Santos is sitting there today thinking, It'll be fine to run from Washington, but he will be, if he wants to please the base, in the middle of these um, gladiator battles between the Marjorie wing, which is on a different page than the Matt Gates wing on Monday, but then on again on Thursday, and then what, which big, you know, right-wing media hosts are going to take, you know, whose side. It's all going to change because they're not really certain where the base is going. Um, and, and, and so the, the actual sort of camps of loyalty continue to shift, but those players will continue to make life miserable for the speaker in a tiny, frail majority because they have to and because they can and because it works out great for them. And so that will, that will mean no matter what, you know, this outsider narrative, uh, no matter how much they lean on that, they're still going to be asked to take a position on these really consequential fights, you know, DeSantis or, or anyone else. And it's going to be really hard for them. Yeah. Which, which, you know, it reminds me of a conversation we had, Oh, I don't know, a year and a half ago where, you know, the question was, are the Democrats going to get blown out in the midterm that's coming? The one we just had. And we were just both of us beginning to say, it's not a normal election cycle. There may be a referendum to be had on the craziness in the Republican side as well. So it might not just be a referendum on the president. And that was before Dobbs. I mean, we were just sort of thinking that this was a weird time. But it, but now it's sort of doubling down on that. And, and we're faced with a year that should be a disaster for Democrats with all the Senate seats that are up, um, you know. Um, but the the dynamics are just so unpredictable and strange. Right. So it's so interesting when you think about the Senate map, right? You think this is just doomsday for the Democrats. And then you think, well, this is the third election in a row that was a referendum on MAGA, 2018, 2020, 2022. <clears throat> then you, 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 if you're Mitch McConnell, you're thinking we can avoid this. We've all learned our lesson. We're going to hold hands and nominate sane people in key Senate races. But maybe they don't. (laughs) I mean, good luck with that. The Michigan Democratic Party got, you know, the Michigan Republican Party got humiliated in a way that I, you know, they went from having everything to having nothing. Right. They got absolutely humiliated. And the lesson they learned is that maybe like Dana Perino is going to be the head of the party again. Like, what? Yeah, they learn nothing. That's what's so interesting about this time is that there is so volatile on the on the right. They don't know if the voters are ready to reject Trump. So they're even just watching the speaker battle. Right. It really had nothing to do with Trump. He wasn't instrumental. But then McCarthy had to come out and say after he won that he was and no one should doubt his influence. You really kind of in uh, it's just like a suspended reality where they don't know how to handle that. Are they going to move on from Trump? Are they not? And they're waiting for the base to kind of respond. Right. And there's all these talks and conference rooms 
and, and, and donor banquets about what a disappointment it was to lose all those Senate seats. But their voters picked Blake Masters and all these other people. Right. So, right. so we just, I mean, if you look at it, how much time do they have? They can't change their voters. Their voters have changed them. And so it's going to be fascinating to see um, see see how they navigate the turmoil of that in, in the months well, to come. I mean, th- this question of whether or not they're ready to dump Trump is absolutely massive, and I don't know the answer. Well, I, how could it possibly help restore sanity to have Jim Jordan lead a committee called, you know, investigating the weaponization of the federal government? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's madness. It's name. That is like, hey, everybody who's taking your gun and you're out in the woods in a militia this weekend, I, I'm for you. You you didn't fight hard enough on January 6th because the government is evil and they're coming after you. So come back. I mean, I I I feel like January 6th was one battle in an ongoing insurrection that we are still in the midst of. And I think that's really what voters are um you know, the, the last couple elections have been about. And I think the next one may be too, which, which, which should I just put a stake in the ground now? Cause things will change a hundred times in two years, but this is an, the next election is one Democrats should lose, right? Like, but just look at who's up. We should get our clock cleaned. Um, and I just don't, I just don't know. I, you know, it's so strange and the right has just gone. So far, and Americans, you know, Americans are not radical on either side. Never have really been. And that's what's so, it, it is interesting. I don't, I didn't feel on November 9th that America rose up to save democracy and that, that they were as aware um, as you and I are and your, and your audiences um, and were following it as closely as we were. Um, I, I think that. In many cases, if you combine the energy against the Dobb decision, uh, the concern of, about losses of freedoms um, from the court and from the right, and, and then you added that to, like, just the voter looking at Doug Mastriano for governor and saying yeah. that's just a non-starter. You know, so, yep. so it was sort of a it was a perfect storm of for good, you know. Um, but 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 I, I do think that if they manage to. If the 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 intra party fighting on the Republican side is going to be just unbelievable, Um, and they don't know where they're going, they don't know who's leading them, they don't know what they want, and Kevin McCarthy has just done everything that swing voters in this election told them not to, starting with like you said, you know, putting. Jim Jordan in charge of massively expensive investigations that are, you know, basically obstructing justice. So the, the, the idea of, of the idea that, the, that, that a Democrat running for president, whether it's Biden or someone else in a recovering economy um, against extremist candidates can't lift the boats of some, you know, of the Senate map. Um, is, is, that's just not out of the question, right? It, 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 we just saw what happened. It was in, we, we, he defied the Democrats, defied all historical trends in a midterm election to kind of break even. Um, they lost the House by four because they were going to lose it by forty, and you know that's the way it goes. 
and it's probably all because of New York. But it's not it's not crazy for us to sit here and say today something crazy something unexpected could happen again to the to the 2024 map that we're looking at for the Democrats in the Senate, and and um, and they could survive, you know, in ways that we can't envision right now. It would be a combination, obviously, of the House GOP melting down of the nominating contest on that side being horrible and completely divisive and very Trump-centric, whether he's the nominee or not. And then for the Senate, um, you know, them nominating terrible candidates. I just don't know how Mitch McConnell, yeah. you know, no matter how much Controls he that. breaks away. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, so, and one more wild card is in there. Well, there's one more wild card, and it's a terrifying one, and that is, of course, this um, this uh uh, I don't know. I'm not going to try and say what they are. This Supreme Court, it has unbelievably important docket and God knows what they're going to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, Democrats and independents have finally woken up to the power of a, of a very imbalanced court. One that I'm, you know, I've said to you, I, I believe in our past conversations is, is, is a, is a huge lever of power that the Democrats, I thought really failed to take seriously and to educate their voters about for years. Now those people are awake to this. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, so all of that, these are all, these are all things that, um, forgive the word conspire to make this, uh, 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 two more years in the middle of an insurrection as opposed to two normal years and and um, really consequential for the direction of our democracy. And, you know, I, I say this, uh, I mean it, but it's exhausting. I'm happy to be alive in an important time. You know, you read history, the guys who lived during the revolution or made a difference after the civil war for good or ill. These were really important times that changed our country and the world, and we're in one of those. Um, there's there's I, no question. Yeah. Um, uh, did they really change the name of the Education and Labor Committee because they think labor is a bad word? Uh, probably. They I, I and they and they took reform <laughs> out of um, reform and uh, government reform and oversight, and they made it oversight and accountability because they don't yeah. want to reform anything. And, and, and I, you know, this was the week that, you know, somebody um, in Ohio, you know, went into a third grade classroom when the teacher was reading a Dr. Seuss book with the kids and interrupted the class as if a crime were being committed in plain sight. So you can't can't have this discussion of Dr. Seuss because it's like CRT oh. or something, you know, and and. And in Florida, like they've like take, gotten board members to completely, you know, change a, co- a college entirely. And, and so the, the party that says you're the cancel culture is now canceled, Doctor Doctor Seuss. Just I just don't know how Mitch McConnell or any you know sort of traditional conservative can put the genie back in the bottle. Right. Right. That's that's the problem is it's not his party anymore. And Mm. so he, you know, bravely said after this 
I say brave because I guess she's the only person of stature who speaks the truth anymore. And it's not every day, of the week, but occasionally. But he said, you know, the voters were the swing voters were frightened of Republicans. And that and he knows that they are. But but he, you know, he, the, the base voters of his party are frightening and they nominate frightening people. So there's nothing that he he can sit there. He has to walk. He has to walk this fine line where he doesn't insult his, you know, the base voters of the of the GOP. Uh, so it's it's it, you know he's not going to stand up and say we're not book banners. That's not what we are. He's just going to talk about how we have to have good candidates who, um, you know, don't give people high blood pressure. So if you yeah, think I, I don't it, think that's, that's really, enough. We don't right because we don't have another actual leader in the ranks of the Republican Party, except for him, who occasionally speaks the blunt truth. Um, Mitch, uh, Mitt Romney is, you know, he's he's done a lot of, you know, he, of good things um, for for the to, to be a truth teller and, and, to, and to be a person of integrity, to, to fight his party, to fight Trump. But he's not the leader of the party and he and he likes to. You know, he picks and chooses when he's going to speak, and he's not Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader. Um, and then, you know, Donald Trump's a maniac. Uh, Ron DeSantis now, who is the most, I mean, McCarthy is useless. No one's looking to hear what Kevin McCarthy says because nothing he says is real. And we don't, you know, former presidents like Bush are not, you know, you know they're not allowed to talk. They don't, they don't matter to the base. Um Fox News hosts were on different side of the Kevin McCarthy battle. So who is important and, and who is, you know, a voice of influence? It's, 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 it's incredible. I mean, nobody. And that's right, why but the party can't win. This is a bidding for the bottom. They can't win with this base. That's that's the thing. This base, yeah. this base is out of step with so much of America that, that making them happy means you can't win. Right. So yeah. Yeah. and I know if you lose them entirely, you don't have anything to replace them with and you don't win. But that's just a rebuilding. I mean, I'm you know, I'm a Cubs fan. We have teams that, you know, you can't win with. So you trade all your players and it takes a couple of years and you build a new team and maybe you'll win a game. But they can't they can't win with this base. And somebody has to look them in the eye and say this space that you have cultivated, that you have radicalized. You, is a danger to to not just your party but the country, and and you, you need to ditch them and start over. Oh, they will and never you, do that. But then they can't win. They'll never be a. They'll never be a. Well, they can win, but they can't win in a democracy because that that the country's horrified by this base. I I think you're right, but what the but. What they're sitting around thinking about is that Sununu won with a great margin, Mike DeWine won with a great margin, Ron DeSantis won with a great margin, and there are still sane Republicans outside of Washington who are going to come to their rescue. My, what I'm going to be so curious about is to see what Ron DeSantis is like running for president and trying to assuage this nihilistic base while preparing to become a general election candidate. 
to win over swing voters and win the Electoral College. It's not at all clear to me that he's ready to position himself in that way or that he'll even get into the race. Um, so Nunu is a likable guy. He's played it really smart. He's trying to be a populist, but he's like kind of rational. Um, he's really into governing. Um, he's trying to be all things to all people. He has criticized Trump, but not too much. Um, but, you know, can someone like that represent this party or do they want people who are just going to do battle and fight day in and day out against the libs and the media and the Mexicans and the Muslims, which is what right. Trump has been for them for seven years. And and what uh, this House is going to be doing for the next two years. So I, I just, right. you know, I, they're going to have to compete with Jim Jordan's megaphone. And I, I don't yeah. know how they say, I'm sorry, he's taken us down the wrong, you know, wrong hole um, uh, and win their primaries with this base. But I'm not an expert in Republicans, so maybe they can figure it out. I just don't see it. it, it that's really to, to win the primary and please this base. They will not be criticizing Jim Jordan. They'll be waiting until they're a general election candidate. But how do you become I mean, who, what is the. Is the base only going to pick someone uh, like Trump? Or are they actually interested in moving on and and winning? And you hear a lot of Republicans say, no, no, the voters, they want to move on. They want a winner. They know Donald Trump's only good for another four years. DeSantis is good for eight. They, they really want to win. Really? I mean, we know what it takes to win. You compromise and you moderate. That's what you do to win. You represent more people, not fewer. And so I, right. I don't. I don't think we'll know for a while what those voters really want. I mean, there are there are groups on the left. Um, I want to say the Democratic Party. I'm not sure what party they're in, if they're in any. You know, I mean, in, you see them in municipal elections all the time, um, and they demand candidates do certain things because they want their community organization. Or something. They don't want to win. They don't. They don't care about it. Their their stature in whatever community they claim to represent is determined by how hard they fight for a divisive position that may sound like justice, but doesn't ever win. Right. But it's sort of limited on the left. You know, you again, you see it more in municipal elections on the right. You're seeing it across the whole country. They've done this. Yes. Yes. It, it is, um, and that's what the House Republicans, that's what's so amazing about what we're seeing in the House Republican majority, because it's a four-seat, five-seat majority, whatever it is. And they know that they just lost, I mean, not lost, but lost a bunch of Senate races that they were supposed to win, didn't have a red wave they were supposed to ride, because uh, because people believe that that they're completely out of step. And now what they're doing is, Jumping, you know, way out of step, and it's it's a it's a it's a really they know they know what's happening. Kevin McCarthy knows that in order to grow, if he wanted to grow his majority, he would have to come out from day one and say, "We want to work with Democrats and President Biden where we can." That's not really what he's saying. 
He would no. say we're going to pick and choose our investigations, and we're going to—they're going to be fair and forthright. And you will see, you will be impressed by them. Instead, he's saying I might consider expunging Donald Trump's impeachment. So he, he, he's literally like a DNC ad in the making. Uh-huh. Totally welcoming George Santos. I mean, it's it's really. Um, it, it, it's, it's political it's, misconduct it's on top of everything else. And, yep. Right. And I don't think that me and Mitch McConnell are even talking to each other. I mean, it's, it, no. it's, 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 it's a it's a very it's a very broken situation. But I and in the next few I, years, I, we're going to see all the benefits of the 117th Congress start to roll out to the country. So the country is going to feel yeah. like, oh, my God, government actually did something. It's going to be really interesting. Well, you and I are again out of time. Um I do love our conversations. You are so smart and thoughtful um, and you have visibility into these Republican conversations that I completely lack. So I, I, I want to can't thank you enough for the time you spend with me and with everybody listening. You're just so kind. Thank you so much for all your, your, your enthusiastic words. And it's always a joy talking to you and we'll catch up again soon. Good. You take care. All right, everybody, we're going to go to a break. And when we come back, it's your calls at 773-763-9278. I look forward to hearing from you. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, we are back. And, of course, all of our favorite time, your calls at 773-763-9278. Paul, you are up first. Yeah, I can't uh, hey, you. Edwin, how you doing? There you are. Hi. So the, here's the question. I mean, we know. <coughs> Excuse me. Hello. Paul dropped. We'll go to Jim, and then and, and then Paul will call back. Jim, you're up. Uh, yeah, when, yeah, to me, the strategy is to improve our efforts in the rural communities in the United States. If we can capture two percent, one percent, and the way to do this is an infrastructure bill. I think in medicine, for sure, all forms of medicine. And an educational, another bomb for, uh, if we could control the Senate, we get one more shot at this, and bring the rural voters in. And I think that would even the playing field. Uh, uh, you saw Pennsylvania, they, uh, Fetterman made inroads in the rural areas. That's the key, I think, to success is we convincing these people that I'm a single parent healthcare person since I was a kid. I, yep, but, yep, yep. But that and an educational thing and the manufacturing coming back, give these people an opportunity to unionize in these manufacturing places and understand and just make it even, uh, just an even playing field. Anyway, you had a great show as usual and thank you. All right. And thank you for, thank you for your ideas. Always interesting. I want to think about that, but how Democrats, make progress in rural America is a really interesting question. Um, Certainly expanding broadband across rural America, which Democrats did uh, funded in the last Congress and is starting to happen now. 
um, is a step. Okay, Brian, you're up, and um, I'm interested in your thoughts. Well, hello, Edwin. A wonderful show as uh, usual. Hope you're doing well. Um, uh, I don't know if uh, you heard uh, the reports. There were even more documents found today uh, in relation to Joe Biden. Did you hear that? I did. And uh, I think uh, all these reports of documents are going to be uh, hogging most of the news uh, cycles, I think. And I think this is a very uh, unfortunate uh, uh, thing because uh, uh, while uh, we are, uh, uh, Joe Biden is going to be distracted by this. And uh, uh, I don't know how much uh, uh, really uh, reporting. Uh, uh, we're going to get uh, with the very uh, uh, troublesome things the Republicans are going to be about uh, while this is going on and how long this is going to last. And uh, I heard one reporter say that uh, uh, that the fact, uh, I don't see where you go from A to B on this, but uh, that the fact that they found documents on uh, on uh, Biden is going to make it less likely that Garland's going to press any charges on Trump. Uh, but uh, uh, this is the kind of thing I think you're going to get uh, a lot of from the uh, certainly uh, 1,500 uh, uh, right-wing radio stations and on Fox. Uh, and uh, I think it's a very dangerous thing. Uh, uh, as we uh, look forward to, uh, well, really right now, but uh, looking forward to the next elections. And then uh, you're probably aware of what happened in Brazil uh, almost two years to the date of the insurrection here where uh, uh, there was a storming of the Congress of Brazil and the Supreme Court, and they destroyed the historical documents. 400 were arrested immediately, and uh, the current president of uh, Brazil, thankfully the army didn't go against him there, uh, called them a bunch of fanatical fascist Nazis, and the previous president, I don't know his name, uh, he's, Bolsonaro. Uh, he's in Orlando right now, and yes. he's denying that he uh, lost the election. They call him Trump of the tropics. Yes. Uh, it turns out that we used to export democracy around the world. Now we export enraged autocracy. Um, and it's a disgrace. Absolute disgrace. His name is uh, Bolsonaro, is the name of Bolsonaro. the former president. Yep. Yeah, well, I, I really, uh, and I've, <laughs> I've been kind of calling it, well, I have been calling in for about the last two years, kind of uh, a variety of topics, and one of them is that people really need to see some documentaries on uh, uh, the history of fascism, and I think I referenced to you the story of fascism. And uh, hosted by Steve Reeves, it's PBS, yep. or Read the Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, uh, yep. uh, or something about Mussolini or Franco, about how horrible fascism is, because people in this country really have to uh, stay on their toes and uh, be awake. Uh, and, uh, you know, because I think, uh, once again, we find ourselves in this struggle between uh, keeping our democracy and uh, possibly sliding into a totalitarian fascist state. Mm -hmm. I, I'm afraid I agree with you, Brian. Well, th thank you, as always, uh, for listening and for your interesting ideas and your call. Well, thank you um, so much, Edwin. You always do a wonderful yep. job. Thank you. So so uh, before I go um, to 
uh, Eduardo, who will be next. I just want to say uh, Brian raised, and I haven't talked about it, and I think it's fair to talk about it, the uh, discovery of documents marked classified um, uh, amongst Joe Biden's papers, not in the White House, um, in, but in a couple locations. Um, the uh, the, il- the uh, outgoing U.S. attorney in Illinois, a Republican and a Trump appointee uh, looked at it and said, you know what, there's some there's some concerns here. And Merrick Garland appointed a special counsel to look at it. And as I've said on many occasions, I have confidence the Justice Department will do a full and fair job and they'll do it as quickly as they can. Um, uh, they sure have their hands full. That's for sure. So I hope there is nothing to this. I hope it is a innocent uh, mistake and we will find out. Um, and and then as we are finding out about uh, the Trump administration and others. Okay, Eduardo, you're up. What's on your mind? Yeah, Ed, uh, good afternoon. I uh, wanted to comment on Trudy Garcia. You know, it's interesting he has a safety plan, although when they had a uh, donut uh, shooting over there on Archer and Kedzie, one of the offices that was hit was his office, and he's going to be lecturing us about a safety plan. Seems kind of hypocritical. Okay, well, um, I, I uh, mostly focus on national issues and not mayoral race issues on this show, in part because um, I have a candidate in the race and I want, you know, not to use these airwaves to uh, uh, to politic for one mayoral candidate over the other. But I want to say okay. because uh, somebody is a victim of a crime does not mean that they can't I'm quite the contrary. I disagree with you on this because his office was a victim of crime, because anybody's a victim of a crime doesn't mean that they should not argue that we can do better. I mean, he's not running the police. He's a candidate. Right. Um, You can't blame anybody who's been a victim of the violence and the shooting in Chicago. And you would expect all of them to say, as they are, we need our police to do a better job. We need a plan that will help fix this problem. So I don't hold it against him that he was a, his office was a crime victim. Anyway, thank you for calling. Well, and um, thank you. You know, the, 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 no doubt the mayor's race will unfold and I'll figure out how to deal with it. But in due time, but it's not you know, my main focus here. All right, Derek, you're next. Okay, pick one, and and Derek, the one you pick, will tell me which one. Hi, Derek. This is Derek. How are you? Okay, I'm good today. How are you? Me too. I'm doing great. I just wanted to say that I noticed uh, when they're covering one of the very important issues, crime and gun control, the media always says that Congress, every time we have a mass shooting or a school shooting afterwards, it's that Congress continues to fail to act. And I think that's not correct. I think they need to be very specific and say that the Republicans in Congress are continuing to block any sensible gun control and that the Democrats are united and they're voting in full to do this. And it's only the Republicans that are blocking these efforts. Because it sounds like Congress can get direct together, but really it's simply the Republicans that are blocking any gun control. The Republican voters are in favor of it. Democratic voters are in favor of it. Independent voters are in favor of it. It's just the Republicans in Congress that are blocking. 
and their donors and, and their donors. Right. Right. So so what's interesting, um, it, it, Congress passed some gun legislation, gun safety legislation in the 117th Congress that just ended. It was the first time in years they were able to do it. It was incremental and very small what they passed. But it's a real test because it got bipartisan support. And the test is this. If the Republicans who voted for it didn't suffer at the polls, and most of them didn't, um, then maybe they'll be willing to do more because they're so afraid of Fox News and their base that they have been unwilling forever to do anything on this issue. But some did a little bit. So I'm hopeful that we'll be able to do more now that even the Republicans are beginning to see that this is not a third rail, to use an urban term. You know, um, it won't it won't damage them terribly to do the right thing for a change. But you're right. All the opposition has been from the GOP. Anyway, Derek, thank you so much for your call. And you know what? We're going to go from Derek to Derek. There is another Derek waiting. Hello, Derek. Yeah, yes, Mr. I love your show. Uh, you know, with Joe Biden getting up in age and all this stuff, he's about to uh, come against with all these uh, documents. Uh, if he wasn't to run again, who would be our possibilities on the uh, Democratic side? I know our governor. He seems to have some interest. But what do you think? Who would be our possibilities? Well, so, look, um, Joe Biden, I think, has done a very good job. Um, But if he decides for whatever reason, and it could be uh, that he is, as you say, getting up there, it could be that, you know, just it's hard job and stuff adds up and he may feel like it's not for him anymore. If he decides he's not doing it, the Democrats have a deep bench. Remember, there were a lot of candidates in the primary uh, a few years ago. Right. And some of them were remarkably good. Right. Um, And that'll happen again. We will have a competitive primary. No doubt there will be some governors. Um, And you said our governor. I don't know what state you're calling me from, but maybe you're calling from Illinois because I've heard some people talking about J.B. Pritzker running. But you could be calling from Michigan where people have talked about um, uh, Governor Whitmer running. Right. The Democratic bench is deep and strong. Um, You know, uh, I mean, I was really impressed with the candidates four years ago. I mean, Pete Buttigieg was a strong candidate. Um, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, you know, was a strong candidate. We have we have a lot of people who will make our run. Uh, It'll be as Democrats always do. It'll be a spirited conversation and we will end up with a strong candidate out of that process. I don't have a horse in that race at the moment. And I don't even know, you know, what horses will make it to the gate. But you can be assured there are a lot of people who, you know, we have a bench and it's taken years, but the Democrats have a bench. So, yeah, um, yeah, I agree with you. Governor, President Biden is doing an excellent job in my book and I hope he runs again. But if not, it's just something that dwells in my mind. Talk to you later. Yep. Thank you for calling. Really appreciate it. Uh, Brian, you're next. Hello. Yes. Good afternoon. Uh, first Good off, afternoon. I want to tell you, I really enjoy your show. You talk to some really interesting people, uh, some some nice interviews there. Um, Brian, where are you calling from? I'm in Albuquerque. I used to live oh. in Chicagoland, and I started I started uh, listening to this time slot when Dick Kay started it back in mm-hmm. whatever that was, the 90s maybe. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was a while ago. But, uh, yep. Anyway, 
I mean, there's a dearth of live political conversation on a Saturday afternoon. There's not an R market. It's all canned rerun stuff from the week, which is terrible. Um, I just like to point out, I, I consider myself a centrist. I worked union my whole life. I grew up in an Irish Catholic family. And I, mm-hmm. I, know, I know a lot of conservative-minded people and people that vote Republican for a lot of reasons. And... In, in most of our conversations, we focus on the extremes. We want to talk about all the extremes in the Republican Party. There's a lot of centrist people there, too, and we got to win them over. And I wanted to point out that one of the flaws or the weaknesses is the extremes in the Democratic Party. I mean, think about it this way. Think how the conversations evolved. JFK said, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country, Right. And then now leading voices are saying your society is racist and unfair and your government owes you a basic lifestyle. That's the message that's being pumped out. You know, business owners that I know, that's what they hear. It's you're going to tax everybody to give everybody else everything. And then you're going to have high levels of immigration on top of it and give them everything, too. And, and then we're magically going to pay for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah so so I, I hear that, but I don't hear that. For, it sounds no, crazy. I, I appreciate that. I do. And I hear it, too. But I don't really hear it from Democrats. I hear it from what Republicans say Democrats are for. And if you look at the bills that actually did get passed, you know, I mean, immigration reform would be great because immigration is broken and everybody needs to fix it. Um uh, but, you know, Biden is is uh, enforcing the laws on the border. It's and deporting lots of people and trying to stop, um, given the terrible tools he has, trying to stop this this illegal flow. Um, I think we could use a little bit more of it than we have immigration. But that's just me. Um, but uh, I don't hear this. Let's tax everybody and. Um, uh, give everything away. I mean, the giveaways well, that I see you know, are are too big. You know, many like, like just take the IRS agent issue, right? This notion that 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 Republicans are telling you we shouldn't have IRS agents because they're going to come after you, and the government's going to take your money. But really, the, to get those extra IRS agents is really the way that you can get your refund on time, which today nobody gets. And it's your money. It's not the government's money, the refund. So, But they don't have the staff to give it to you. And they certainly don't have the staff to, to audit uh, returns like Donald Trump's, which we found weren't audited. And, you know, the guys who spend a fortune um, finding ways to hide their income can get away from it. So... I, I don't hear that. I hear from Biden and from a lot of leading Democrats. Look, if you work hard and you play by the rules, you should be able to have a good life in America. Not we owe you some standard. We owe you a fair shake well, so you can get, you know what I mean? That's what I hear. Well, I I, I hear a lot of stuff. But you, a lot of the conversation act like, you know, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk are going to pay for everything. You know, and, and nobody yeah, They're not. Which no, they're not. Uh, yeah, they're not supposed. To, and as rich as they are, they couldn't pay for everything. And and right. but they shouldn't. America should be a place where people can can build new businesses and get you know fabulously wealthy. I don't begrudge them that. I do begrudge a system though that benefits the already wealthy over everybody else so much. 
you know, and, and the gap between with them and us has only gotten bigger. Let me finish with this. We live in a yep. fascinating era in our politics. It really is because the World War II era is officially over. Those people are mostly gone. All the old dinosaurs that have been in Congress forever, they're going to be gone in the next five years or less. So there's a lot of new people coming onto the scene, and there's a lot of new technologies, and there's a lot of really serious issues we got to deal with. And I think our political conversations are too limited and too emotional, and it's, it's always just about trying to shave off a few more voters to go one way or the other, and we really don't talk about the issues. But I think you do a great job, and I just wanted to say thank you. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And I have the benefit of a, of a format that allows a different kind of conversation. They're a little longer than usual. They can be a little more thoughtful. Most of the, the news is, you know, hit, 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 and they just don't have the chance to have. So I'm very lucky to be able to have these conversations. And I really appreciate, uh, I can only have them because there's an audience that likes them. So thank you. I really appreciate that. Richard, you're next. Hello, hello. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, the document uh, uh, discoveries and how we're, you know, it's being covered in the press uh, and how to, you know, how to respond to it. And, and what comes to mind is this, you know, instead of being worried about it, I think it's a good opportunity to uh, remind people, because I think they've already forgotten, everything that was said by debt Republicans about Trump when this first broke for him, when he had the 300 documents and the you know, the affidavits that weren't true. And so we're getting a little kind of uh, catatonic in a sense and a little ahead of ourselves. I, I think it's the best way to defend and remind people that uh, rather than this being a single incident, that there was something just recently. And the people that are criticizing Biden are the same people who are falling all over themselves with excuses about mind-melding ways of, you know, uh, unclassifying documents, all the, all the garbage. We ought to be repeating it, throwing it right back at them. And and, me, and also say, we don't think that what Biden, what's happened with Biden is a good thing either. But to yep, uh, I, only I, take hits and not reply. That's something. Yeah, I, I don't know if I agree with you. And not that you're not right on the merits. Absolutely right on the hypocrisy. Absolutely right on the merits. But I still think we owe um, uh, America a focus on, you know what? Well, the government should work. So the Justice Department has done the right thing. They've got an independent counsel. They're going to investigate. They're going to get to the bottom of it. And that's the process that should happen. And by the way, it's happening with uh, January 6th. And it's happening with uh, uh, Trump's business. We're going to get to the bottom of it and hold people accountable. And I want to f- focus on that. And you know, one of the reasons I want to focus on it is because I actually believe that the former president is going to get indicted this year. Um, so I'm going to do my best to continue to uh, make sure people have faith well, that the Justice Department yeah. will do its job. Yeah, well, maybe I didn't say uh, so well. I, uh, what I'm trying to say is, is I, I fully, if I did something wrong, I agree. I agree with everything that's happening. The Justice Department should do what they're doing. But I'm just saying that we can't just be there and take hits. We have to start getting more aggressive like the Republicans and start to throw things back at them. Now, they all lied and you know, contorted themselves into you know, uh, making excuses. I don't want to make those excuses. I want to point out what they said. That, I you know, couldn't I, agree with you more, but you have better targets. Yeah. 
you got be- just as a matter of, of political strategy, you got better targets, right? You can argue about um, the documents that were found at Biden's residence, but they're right. But no matter what you say about it, that's what you're talking about. Or you can argue that they have a liar and a guy who's invented his resume and taken money illegally in Congress and they're leaving him there just because they want they, they don't care about America and they want his vote. Or you can argue about what Jim Jordan is doing with his committee. Like, let's argue about what they're doing. And, and I think that is a better taking it to them than than using their words to talk about what we're doing that, you know, what really is getting an investigation that it should have. You got plenty of things you can go right at them on, is what I'm saying. Yeah, well, well, this is just a, to me a golden opportunity, you know, because yep. they chose their yep. hypocrisy. So I, I think we're saying, yeah, well, they're unashamed to be called hypocrites. That's like a badge of honor. <laughs> <laughs> all right, any, all right. So anyway, um, uh, Richard, thank you for your call. I'm going to try and squeeze in one more call very thank quickly. You. Thank you. You bet. David, you heard we have a little less than a minute. Just say what's on your mind and you'll get the last word. Oh, thanks, Edwin. Uh, yeah, basically, government, uh, you had a couple of callers talking about the uh, difference between Democrats and Republicans. The difference is that uh, the old timers knew that government was supposed to be run as a nonprofit. Uh, it wasn't supposed to be uh, government as a business. And government as a business demands that the sewage department make a profit or that the, uh, you know, the water system make a profit or the locks and dams make a profit. No, it was supposed to be everything in government is supposed to be run as a nonprofit. And so the Democrats got suckered by Reagan into imitating the Republicans and this government as a business theory, which is All right. Well, I got it's got to be our last word because we are out of time. Thank you so much, everybody. Uh, Have a great week. I will see you next week.